Southern Skies. Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by Oz Runways, the complete EFB for all pilots. Available for iPad or Android, Oz Runways is versatile, reliable, proven. Make the switch today with a free 30-day trial by visiting ozrunways.com and by Without Precedent. The latest release by acclaimed aviation writer Owens Up. Without Precedent chronicles the remarkable military career of Owens' father, Phillips Up, World War II commando, Korean War fighter pilot and the first Australian to receive the American Purple Heart. Available in all good bookstores and in ebook format. Find out more. Visit owensup.com. Does this thing work? I hope so. How do we do this thing again? I don't know. It's been such a long time. How are you, mate? Yeah, not bad. But hey, I'm standing here with a handheld recorder and a can of Coke. This can't <laughs> be too bad. <laughs> You're not drinking. Unbelievable. No, no booze. Who I are know. you? I know, I know. I'm it's... Steve Bishop. I'm here with this impostor, eh? I'm not an impostor. It's just me not drinking booze. All right, enough of the outtakes. Well, g'day, folks. Welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 127, I think, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one, mate. 127. <laughs> yes, of Australia's aviation show, the not-so-frequent-as-it-used-to-be aviation show, but we are actually standing here in the studio. I'm Steve Vischer, and how are you, Grant McHeron? Yeah, not too bad. Is that mate, what you look bad. like, mate? Yeah, you I, know, I know, that's, that's pretty much me. Just careful. I, I don't knock the Coke. The Coke, uh, unbelievable. I need it. I've got a long night ahead of me. You know what would look really weird? Even now, folks, we should explain it's actually on the night of my daughter's 21st birthday, and we snuck away into the studio to record this really quickly. Exactly. So, um, fortunately, our wives have said, yeah, go do it. Or well, one of one has, and I think the other one doesn't know. But uh, So, we're getting <laughs> no, through this. No, she quickly. definitely doesn't know. No. Okay, there you go. Yeah, so lots going on in the world of Steve and Grant. Um, Mostly to do with work and uh, all sorts of craziness around that, and new houses, and yeah. and in fact, yeah, I, Kit and I moved over Easter, and you've um, your building, so we're attempting to move without yeah. much success. Yeah, well, you got to finish building before you can move yeah. in. We've got to even start building. Yeah, well, there is that. Anyway, let's not talk about building. Let's talk about aviation. We thought we'd yeah. throw in a, a quick episode together here, folks. Uh, just to get something out into the feed for you. And uh, once again, we're going to raid the vault, but uh, just some good content that we've been storing for uh, quite some time, and uh, it's about time it uh, hit the airwaves. That's right, mate. We've got uh, some of the last of the uh, Avalon 2015 <coughs> content, but uh, no, these are these are pretty good ones. We've got uh, some of the folks from uh, Northrop Grumman talking about Fire Scout, which is, of course, the uh, remote helicopter. It's a helicopter drone, very cool, very sexy, new upgraded version. We had them on a few years back talking about one of the early ones. Now mm. it's this... Pretty much a whole jet ranger and australia is looking at that and also triton which we're signing up for uh, which is the big uh, long range uh, high altitude long endurance drone or uas so uh, got a couple of good interviews on that we've also got a forward air controller who flies a pc9 and it's one of the most demanding jobs in the air force uh, because you're flying a pc9 dodging low level terrain very close to the earth trying not to get shot at and also coordinating the attack from all the other f-18s and so on and i think that's interesting too that we get those sorts of interviews because most people would think 
RAF PC-9, they think of the Roulettes, of course, yeah. and they think of it as a training aircraft. But uh, that's, that squadron's not that long ago stood up again. Yeah. And uh, good to see them out there uh, doing that work. And yeah, I imagine it would be very demanding and probably quite scary. Exactly. So maybe a couple other items. We'll see what's in the bucket and uh, chuck them in if we've got time and space, but we'll get to them later. But the other half of the show is a whole lot of content I did way back in 2014. Gets worse, doesn't wow. it? Wow. Uh, <laughs> when we were at uh, uh, at the Tyab Air Show, I actually went the day before out to uh, the RAF base at East Sale, where uh, then Wing Commander Tim Allsop and uh, Flying Officer Noobs were um, hanging out. They were uh, they'd done a flyby of Tyab and they were basing themselves at uh, at East Sale. And uh, Slops went up to do a practice run, so I was out there doing interviews and videoing for the Tyab Air Show DVD that we put together. Mm. And uh, so yeah, he uh, sat down, and I've I've got interviews with uh, Slops about his career. He's now group captain, uh, but in charge of uh, 81 Wing, and so he's basically in charge of Air Combat Group. But back then he was wing commander in charge of three squadron, and uh, he talks us through. It's a yeah, it's about 25 minutes. He talks us through doing the handling display over Tyab. So if you've seen the uh, Tyab Airshow DVD, one of the extras was an 11 minute segment, which was all about doing the the handling display. Well, this is the full thing. I actually cut 27 minutes down to 11 minutes for mm. the, for the DVD. Uh, because otherwise my video editor would have killed me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically it's the whole 27 minutes he takes us from startup, like planning everything, all the con- all the things they have to consider, how they plan it, what they do, how they run it, all the way through every little nook and cranny and detail that you're going to want. So for the Airplane Geek f- crowd, aviation enthusiasts, this is fantastic. This is what it's all about. And, uh, you know, I remember back to the time we made that DVD, the thing that really struck me was how enthusiastic that uh, Tim Allsop was oh, really yeah. to sh- show us through the routine yeah. from his point of view. It was fantastic, fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, he's, uh, the, the full 27-minute minute one is just fantastic. It, it really takes you into more depth than the DVD showed. Uh, we've also got him talking about a full walk-around, what he does when he's prepping the Hornet. So from walking out to the aircraft and walking around it, what he's looking for in every bit of it. So close your, mind, close your eyes, imagine in your mind's eye that you're looking at a Hornet with him as he walks you around. It's fantastic. Awesome. So awesome. Uh, And yeah, Tim's a really great guy. I've taken him up in a balloon. I took his wife and daughter in a balloon while I was in uh, Canberra. And he is one of the most enthusiastic guys I've ever met when it comes to just getting right into it, really enjoying it. And he was there with the other rest of his kids' his crew helping get him in the air. And when we landed, and yeah, really great guy. And I'm very happy to see where his career is taking him now but uh, yes he's given us some great content and I think you guys are really going to love it yes and uh, without further ado let's stop waffling away here and get back to the party grant let's uh, kick this episode off Squadron leader Adrian, a.k.a. Booger, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. G'day, mate. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Mate, you're a forward air controller. That's, That's a pretty amazing task to perform. It's a, yeah, it's like the uh, we, we've got the battle space called Close Air Support Mission when you've got fighter attack helos or uh, fighter jets uh, supporting friendly ground forces. Uh, what you don't want to have happen is the good guys shoot the good guys. So that's when you have a forward air controller to ringmaster the whole fight to make sure that the bad guys get shot uh, with the fighter jets or attack helos and that the friendlies remain protected. So my main job out there is to protect the friendlies and help coordinate the attack on the bad guys when they're in close proximity to one another. Okay. Now, this is a role that came out of uh, some of the combat sessions after World War II and so on. Uh, developed around the world. Australia was slightly late to the game. Uh, can you tell us about how this... this is 
capability came up within Australia? Yeah, well, actually, uh, you mentioned World War II. Um, actually, in PNG, when Fort Squadron was up there back in the 1940s, uh, in its very infancy there, Fort Squadron was attributed to using their aircraft in a type of forward air control fight by marking targets with their strafe guns yep. so that the other attack aircraft could come in. But forward air control uh, really came in its fruition in the Vietnam War back in the late 60s, early 1970s, and the uh, Royal Australian Air Force uh, sent a contingent of Australian fighter pilots over to that combat era uh, to be forward air controllers. And then when they returned home back in the late 60s and 70s, uh, the Air Force set up a unit called 4 Fact Flight, and that was based to train Australian fighter pilots doing the forward air control role. Okay. Now, if I remember correctly, that uh, early days of Force Squadron, they would have been flying boomerangs and marking targets for Kiwi Corsairs, if I recall correctly. Yes, so that was in the early days. So yeah. we've come a long way from there. Yeah. They are nice warbirds. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but we've got the mighty PC9 at the moment. Yeah. In all so, its combat glory. So as I understand it, uh, come, you were saying before, coming out of Vietnam, they, everyone got into the uh, the Wirraway. Windjill. Oh, the Windjill. That was it. The Windjill plane. Yeah. Okay. So that was a plane that simulated, it was very the same performance handling characteristics of the OA-1 bird dogs. Yep. The old early forward air control planes that the USAF had in Vietnam. So when the Australian FACS came back to Australia, four FAC flight had a number of windjill aircraft, which are just the Australian trainer aircraft, and they modified them with extra radios. They put some smoke grenade launches on them to mark the targets with visual smoke grenades uh, to do the basic FAC role back here at home. Okay. And then from the windjill, uh, what was the next aircraft up? PC-9 in 1990. They went straight from... Wow, okay. So from the PC-9, and then we've had the PC-9 now for almost 25 years. So we're on the cusp of our third-generation FAC-A aircraft, Uh, roll the dice and whatever that might be it will be (laughs) so yeah it's likely that whatever the trainer is will wind up also doing a fact roll possibly yeah yeah okay the um now the pc9 is no slow coach it's no slouch the pc9 can turn on a 10 cent piece uh it does about with all the fuel tanks hanging off it and the smoke grenade racks it's it's like putting an extra couple of bricks under the wing so flat out it'll do about 250 nautical miles an hour um but so we can get to it to and from an area quite quickly um, but it also has, with the fuel tanks on, we can go up to four and a half to five hours of endurance. So instead of being a uh, fighter jet who's on station burning gas and off in maybe 30 to 45 minutes, we can hang around for the whole fight, up to four hours, uh, and that allows you to get a real understanding of what's happening on the ground. Yep. So you're not coming in cold turkey every 45 minutes. You're there for the whole fight supporting the guys on the ground. This is just in training, obviously. The, the PC-9 isn't an operational platform, yep. but in the training arena, then uh, we really get to embed ourselves with the troops on the ground so we can help them out. Okay. And uh, what's the training that gets you to the point where you're actually able to do all this? Because you know, you're hooting around. There's only one of you on board, isn't there? That's correct. Yeah. Now, the FAC A roll, uh, you can have, like in the US, they, that's the Super Hornet aircraft. So you have a front and a back seat guy working as a FAC A crew. Uh, with the Australian FAC A's, we've just started training the ARH Tiger FAC A's from one aviation regiment up in Darwin. And they're a two pilot crew, so that always helps. Um, but being a forward air controller is like playing three-dimensional chess at 600 miles an hour. I've got, I'm talking to artillery guys, I'm talking to UAV operators, I'm talking to rotary wing assets, I'm talking to fighter jets, I'm talking to AWACS, I'm talking to the ground commander. There is a lot of juggling going on, and you're quite often having a three-hour helmet fire trying to figure out who's who in the zoo, where these people are. So it's, it's a very high-end job, and it takes a lot of brain space to be able to do. So it's, it's not the kind of role that you would have a junior guy do. So typically the, the forward air controllers have already, they're already experienced guys, uh, fighter guys or attack helo guys, so they've already been through their first rotation of that experience, So and then adding that forward air controller capability on top of that 
yeah. uh, is where it sort of happens. A lot of brain space, as you said, so you've got to have huge situational awareness, the ability to juggle a lot of facts and figures about, as you said, where everyone is, and also stay low, keep out of the fire, and uh, protect your asset, your aircraft. Yeah, and it's even harder for me because I've got a small brain, so I've got to work twice as hard as anyone else. <laughs> so uh, you do. If you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, guess what? You've got an artillery 155 round coming through the windscreen, yeah. or uh, you've got a Mark 83 going bang in the target area, and if I'm too close... I could have some frag coming through the windscreen as well, and then I'm a, I'm a victim of my own yeah. coordination there. So uh, even in training, we've, we're using live rounds, live bombs, live artillery, live mortars, live naval gunfire support, and it's all about bringing those the firing assets into the target area um, and coordinating that so that... Um, and that's what the FAC-A does. Okay. Um, so even in training, we're not getting shot at by the enemy, but there's definitely live rounds from the friendlies that could definitely uh, take me out as well. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're caught between everything. <laughs> it's, it's never a dull moment, it's, and it's go, go, go. You'll come back from a three-hour FAC-A mission, and it's like you've had a six-hour gym session. You're oh, yeah. just wringing, wringing wet and sweat. Oh, yeah, and totally drained as well, mentally yeah, as well as right. physically. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a lot of training, clearly, to get to this point. How do you progress up? Yeah, so the training to become a FAC-A, once you get to the stage of being a FAC-A pilot, it's about seven, seven or eight rides to do, to do the FAC-A syllabus, and it typically takes about six months to do. Uh, there are a lot of different assets you've got to do. Day FAC-A, night FAC-A, FAC-A with rotary wing guys, FAC-A with the mortars and artillery, FAC-A with naval gunfire support, FAC-A with fighter jets, and then that's just single element controls, and then you bring the whole lot together and it's like a crawl, walk, run approach. You subdivide all that down into little elements and learn how to do them individually. Yeah. And in the culminating graduation rides, you're bringing all those assets together in a mock fight, um, and it's sink or swim. So it's, it's very much like the, the fighter combat instructors and the uh, fighter uh, controllers and so on. They, they build up to it, and, and so you're really going through like a top gun of FAC A. It, it is the top gun of FAC A. Yeah. Um, and so at Four Squadron, we are the FAC A schoolhouse in the ADF. We're also the JTAC schoolhouse, so the JTAC is the FAC-A on the ground. Yeah. Uh, back in the early days, they used to call them FACs, and they'd call us guys in the air FAC-As to differentiate between the two, okay. forward air controller airborne. Yep. Uh, but they've recently changed the name of the ground FAC to a joint terminal attack controller. So at Four Squadron, we're the only ADF schoolhouse that teaches JTACs and FAC-As on how to do that fight coordination role. So the ACOs and so on would get the get the get yourselves and the uh, fighters closer in, and then the um, the TAC-A, JTAC on the ground would would take over as the final approach and and mark where you're saying they should go. That kind of yeah. Thing. So I can do exactly the same job as the JTAC. Okay. So quite often the JTAC is a one man band in potentially a say a special forces company or a platoon. Uh, he, he's getting shot at on the ground. He could be severely overworked yeah. uh, and not in a position to provide the joint terminal attack control in that close air support fight. So uh, the FAC-A can always lend his assistance to the guy on the ground to, to load shed the guy on the ground when he's getting shot at, and I can help him out by doing the, the same coordination role yeah. from the air that he could do on the ground. So not just marking, you're also coordinating as well, or if there is no JTAC, you're, you're everything. Yeah, yeah, so to help out the JTAC, so the, the main three roles of the forward air controller are primarily to support the ground force commander. That's mission number one. So the guy on the ground, the soldiers on the ground, they've got a mission to execute, and I'm there to help them achieve that. Um, typically when there's bad guys around, you want to take them out, yep. uh, and that's all about integrating fires into the battle space. As I mentioned before, the, the rotoing... Yep. Uh, weapons, the fighter jets, the artillery and the mortars, so the FAC-A integrates fires and coordinates that, that's mission number two and then thirdly, you want to do it all safely, so you yep. want to prevent that all unforgivable sin of committing fratricide 
in the battle space or friendly fire where you inadvertently um, fire on the blue guys, and yep. that's what you don't want to have happen. So they're the three main mission roles of a JTAC or a FAC-8. And here at Avalon, uh, you're actually the pilot doing the uh, the demo aspect of this, and the massive ADF all comes together to blow up Avalon. It all happens session. today. So we've got 70,000 friendlies out there. So my job is to make sure that the friendlies don't get taken out today. Uh, so as part of the ADF showcase this afternoon, we have a 10-minute airfield attack window. Uh, we've got parachuters from the parachuting jump school, training school, jumping out of the back of C-130s. We've got a C-17 coming in for a hot offload with uh, two Bushmasters and troops on that. Uh, they'll then disappear and the ground war will ensue. Uh, there'll be a mock enemy uh, kicking off uh, and a ground fight. And I'll be the FACO that rocks up on station that helps provide the air cover for those notional troops on the ground. So we'll have the ARH Tiger providing rotary wing support and three F-18 Super Hornets providing top cover with uh, the fighter jet support. And I'll be the uh, ringmaster FAC-8, bringing all that together in front of the crowd today. So it should be pretty good fun. Hey, no worries, Adrian. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Cool. I'm sitting at the front of a Mahindra Airvan 10. This is one of the later models uh, of the uh, popular Airvan aircraft that were built by the former Gippsland Aero Company, now Mahindra. I'm here with Dave Wheatland, who is the chief pilot of Mahindra. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here again. And uh, last time we were here at Avalon, uh, you guys were Gips Arrow and now you're Mahindra. Yes, well, since, since the last air show, the relationship with Mahindra has been formalised. Uh, Mahindra now owns a, uh, a majority shareholding in Gips Arrow, and that's why the, the product is now rebranded. Formerly it was the GA8 and the GA10, and now it'll be the Airvan 8 and Airvan 10, because the the Airvan brand was the most widely recognised part of the uh, the whole brand. So overseas, Europe and uh, the US and here in Australia, the, the name Airvan is fairly ubiquitous and that's why we've ended up being the Mahindra Airvan 8 and 10 now. And could I get you to explain, has there been much of a transition process in the acquisition by Mahindra from Gips Aero? No, it's been a fairly painless transition. In, in fact, um, it, it's been a very good transition because uh, Gipsero had been affected uh, by the global financial crisis. Um, we were one of the fortunate aircraft manufacturers worldwide to survive. A number of others didn't survive that, that event. And, uh, but things were still pretty tough for us. You've got to enjoy that noise, don't you? So when uh, when Mahindra uh, indicated when Mahindra indicated a desire to acquire a majority shareholding in the company, uh, it was also with the intention to inject funds into the company to enable us to continue with the R&D on projects such as the Airvan 10 which we're sitting in at the moment. Without that it would have been a significant struggle and, and uh, no doubt Gipsero would have survived but we would have been years behind in the development of this new product. And uh, this is an interesting aircraft we're sitting in, uh, the uh, Airvan 10, slightly uh, by appearance's sake, larger than the uh, Airvan 8. Would you like to explain uh, some of the features of the Airvan 10? Well, there's been a worldwide demand for a, a small turbine aircraft, something smaller than the Caravan. The Caravan has been a fabulously successful aircraft. 
we had a piston aircraft that fitted in the gap between the typical six-seat aircraft and larger aircraft like the caravan and we saw even with the Airvan 8 uh, in the market there there was still space for an additional aircraft a 10-seat aircraft a little bit further up but because there's no real piston engine in that range and there's a, a desire for a lot of countries which don't have access to uh, abundant supplies of avgas they wanted a turbine aircraft so we could see that there was a clear market requirement for it so this aircraft is basically very basically a, a GA8 that's stretched by about three feet an extra row of seats in it a Rolls-Royce M250 B17 turboprop engine in it we've doubled the capacity of the fuel tanks and that gives us about the same endurance as our standard air van goes a little bit faster than our standard air van and it carries that extra two passengers over the standard air van so we're very happy with it so far it's a nice aircraft to fly and I think it's really going to fill a gap in the market where there's currently uh, the only existing aircraft or aircraft like the de Havilland Beaver which has got a radial engine and What's the schedule like to uh, develop and introduce and put this aircraft to market? Well, the first thing you do is you take your absolute very worst estimate for something, double it and then double it again and do the same for the cost and you get vaguely somewhere close to where reality is going to kick in. Uh, these projects are very different, difficult to predict and all new aircraft design as often involves uh, modification, changes in configuration. We believe we've got the configuration of this aircraft pretty much nailed down now and when you get to that situation uh, you can usually the end of the project's in sight but uh, until you can uh, finalise the configuration it's just a matter of you just keep trying things and uh, keep researching. And you mentioned before the aircraft has the Rolls-Royce engine. For curiosity's sake, is there a reason Rolls-Royce power plant was selected as opposed to other models such as the PT-6? Well, this particular engine is, is designed for a fixed wing installation. Rolls-Royce make a lot of similar engines of similar size. The, the Bell Jet Ranger series of helicopters have an almost identical engine in them, so it's a very... Uh, very popular, very reliable engine, but it's also a very compact engine, which gives us uh, a saving in weight, and it's also a very economical engine, which gives us a saving in fuel consumption. So, compared to the PT-6, uh, the PT-6, we believe, would be too much engine for an aircraft of this size, and the Rolls-Royce engine is just, just the right size, and it also gives us then a benefit in, in uh, operating costs over those larger engines. And can you give us some performance statistics on the uh, aircraft, such as speeds and ceilings and the like? Well, uh, qualifying it with the fact that whilst we think we're at the end of our uh, configuration plan, we don't know that for sure, so these figures are, are pretty much ballpark figures, but the aircraft will cruise at about 150 knots true airspeed, at maximum weight at 10,000 feet at a fuel consumption of about 100 litres an hour. So that's, um, that's good fishing performance wise and it's very economical as well. And for the pilots listening, uh, what would it take for a pilot to get to learn this aircraft? Is a endorsement required? Um, it will be a, uh, an aircraft which requires an individual endorsement being a turbine aircraft but the engine, the main thing with any turbine en uh, engine aircraft is that the pilot has a very thorough understanding of how the engine 
the specific engine in his aircraft works and what are the things to look for. Um, other than that, this is a, a basic aircraft. It's unpressurized, it's fixed gear. It does have a turbine engine in it, but uh, it's, it's a very simple and straightforward engine to operate. Uh, it's not a FADEC engine, so the pilot does have to exercise care, but the similar sort of care as operating turbocharged and supercharged engines. And uh, you were referring earlier on on the target market of uh, this aircraft. What what market specifically would you be aiming the uh, G the uh, GA10 at, both in Australia and worldwide? Well, there's a number of industry or market sectors which the aircraft would be very well suited for. Uh, operators like such as Mission Aviation Fellowship or remote operators, community service operators in Africa and South America where Avgas is difficult to obtain. This would be an excellent aircraft. Uh, the same in uh, throughout Asia as well. Also other market sectors are such as skydiving because it's got a, a very large sliding rear door and plenty of room in the cabin. Uh, so skydiving we see would be a a very good market and also the ISR market, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance market because we have a lot of certified installations existing already that we can migrate onto this aircraft from the GA8 or the Airvan 8 project and we already have law enforcement agencies and government agencies who are interested in using this aircraft for those sort of roles. Tomorrow this aircraft is being performed in a flying demonstration. Could you describe what would be involved in that and what you're planning to do for that demonstration for the uh, public? Well, bearing in mind that, that this is the only Airvan 10 at the moment, so we're, we're pretty conservative about uh, what we're going to do with it, so we're not taking any risks. But because the aircraft has excellent vertical performance, it gets off the ground, climbs well, also descends well, so things like the tactical approach and low level handling of the aircraft are the main things we'll be doing. It'll be a display similar to that that I used to do for the, or still do even in the Airvan 8, but with the emphasis on the additional performance and of course the, uh, um, the beta or reverse pitch uh, landing capability for the aircraft. And for the listeners uh, listening in the background now, if you're curious to know what that was, that was the KC-30, the military uh, A330 variant with two F-18s in tow doing a demonstration. That was a bit of a distraction, I must admit. Overall, what has been the uh, performance of Mahindra in the Australian market in terms of sales and general interest in the aircraft? Look, this, worldwide, we have a lot of interest in the aircraft, worldwide. Our market is worldwide. We export about two-thirds of the, the Airvan 8s that we build. We expect a similar uh, ratio, perhaps even more of these, uh, the 10, will be sold overseas. We are certified in over 30 countries worldwide, and we have uh, Airvan 8s operating in about 25 countries worldwide. So we think it's a world product. And uh, similar to the, the Airvan 8, where our expectation is that the local market will be quick on the uptake and also the international market's already shown interest. Righto, well, it's, uh, thank you for taking us uh, on board this aircraft and for having a chat with us uh, about the aircraft and Mahindra. And uh, we look forward to your demonstration uh, tomorrow. It'll be my pleasure. I love flying these aircraft and I'll really enjoy displaying it tomorrow. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dave. Good on you. Mike Sears, you're with the US Navy. Uh, you're here to talk to us about Triton. Absolutely. 
Yep. Okay. Um, so Triton is a derivative of Global Hawk, uh, f- formalized for uh, set up for navi- naval operations, uh, stronger wing, better mm-hmm. able to handle the uh, turbulence associated with overwater operations. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that program going? How, uh, what we've got up to seven being bought in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got quite a few operate, going to operate for the US. How's it all putting together? I, th- I think things are working out exceptionally well. You know, being based at Pax River, where the Naval Air Systems Command is. You know, we've got three Tritons now that have just made the cross-country trek there at uh, Pax River now, going through testing. Overall, the whole program looks like it's running very, very smoothly. Everybody's very happy with where we're going. Things are running very well. Okay. Um, how do you uh, how do you see it, like, interacting here within Australia? We're going down the P8A path. Uh, we're going to have it, my understanding is, it'll be based at Edinburgh down in mm-hmm. South Australia. Potential to work out of uh, Tyndall as well. Um how do you see the um, sensors and so on interacting with what we've got? I think that that's a fantastic question. I think it's going to work great. You know, if you look at the interaction that will happen between P8 and Triton, and then you could take that a step further, it needs to also look at MH60R, which the Aussies have, right, with the RAN, and how that's going to work with the fire scout as well, which dovetails right into what the Navy is doing with their CONOPS. So as you start to develop that, that larger partnership from a global perspective of what you will do with the P8, what can be done with the Triton included with that, with adding an additional orbit possibly out of Australia, which you know feeds into the larger global picture of where the U.S. Navy is going, and then you can take that a step back and also look at from a shipboard perspective what the RAND could possibly do with the Fire Scout as well. It's some pretty eye-watering stuff from a capabilities perspective. Yeah, and we can go from Scan Eagle all the way up, as we were talking before. Absolutely, yep. So you start to look at the requirements for a shipboard, certainly Scan Eagle, maybe even Blackjack. What, what is that next evolution, as uh, the captain had talked, commander had talked about as well? Yep. Okay, so uh, with the Triton, uh, you've got electro-optical. What other kind of sensor payloads are typically on board? Well, there's a lot that's in development right now. So the developing, you know, this, this uh, multi-sensor package that will come in time, right? So I think as we go down this road, you know, the capabilities of what that aircraft will ultimately be, I don't think anybody really knows at this point, right? So as we add these new packages and we look at these new things, what the end game for this aircraft could be, I think it's anybody's guess at this point, but tremendous capability. What kind of um, support network does it need back on base in terms of operations? You've got um, the pilots running it. Um, are they continuously operating it, uh, or do they just set at some pointers and just keep an eye on it occasionally? Well, again, I think that's going to depend on what your concept of operation is. You know, normally for the Navy, it's very autonomous, right? We, we punch in what we want to do. It goes and, and does it. If we need to make mid-course changes or things of that nature, we can do that as well. Uh, but every country has different requirements. They have different perspectives on how they want to operate their aircraft. So certainly that would depend upon them, whether they wanted somebody who maybe was a more hands-on type of operation or to truly let it go autonomous. And in terms of um, the mechanics and so on, the the airframe fitters and so on, Mm -hmm. what kind of uh, group, like staff and levels, does it require to maintain on the ground? Well, it's interesting having some experience on the uh, on the Romeo side, the house of the RAN, you know, how, again, it goes back to how you operate. It's a very low, it's, it's, a, it's a minimal footprint, to, to answer your question very directly. But then it also goes back to what are the skill set of the people that you do have. On the helicopter program, we found the RAN was able to actually shrink down what the U.S. Navy did, having people do multi-tasking, right, rather than having a generic, uh, you know, or a specialist. Yeah, that, well, we don't have a lot of numbers, we don't have a lot of money, so we find that one person has to wind up doing three skills exactly. rather than, yeah, with the, uh, with the U.S. you've got a lot of manpower, so you're able to drill down and get very specialised. Yeah, that's, it's been like that for us for a very long time. Well, it's a, it's a great concept too, right? You know, it's very, very cost efficient as well, right? 
Okay. Um, another aspect of the, um, you know, having these eyes in the skies and the ISR, you're getting a glut of data coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, are you working with uh, military forces to help structure the, the people who are like getting the intelligence out of the data um, and dealing with just so much content coming through? You're absolutely right because there is a tremendous amount of, of information that's going to come out of that. So the question now is you start to filter through that, what, what is the important stuff, right? So a lot of training that will occur in that perspective of as all this data comes in, how, how's it going to be parsed out? What is really imp- the important pieces of that? Triton, you look at as, as really the, the son of Global Hawk, so a lot of lessons learned, right, that were applied forward in Triton, the de-icing and things of that nature, right, the, the ability and, and the possibility to look at different payloads uh, of, of what that can bring, the, the multi-intelligence payload that will come, what, what will come out of that, and how much can we get. So, you know, it's a very interesting program. Again, as, as we go on with the, the number of aircraft that we have, and it's, it's one of those scenarios where I don't know what I don't know yet, right, as we start to develop these more, and, and what could that turn into? You know, what could this possibly bring in the end game? Okay, Mike, well, thank you very much for telling us about Triton. That's been very informative. Uh, we are pushed for time on the room, and the F 16 is just taking off. So, uh, thanks very much, mate. Great, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I'm over here at the Mission Aviation Fellowship stand at Avalon. We featured them on the show a few years ago while we were at Coldstream Airport. And I'm here with three of their volunteers, Max, Ron and Daniel. G'day, gentlemen. Good morning. Hello there. Good morning, Mark. Now, I'll start with you, Max. Uh, you're the uh, area coordinator for Victoria. Give us a rundown on the objective and core of Mission Aviation Fellowship Australia. Yeah, thanks, Mike. We're, we're really glad to uh, be here today. And as people come in and... Uh, and, and look at our, our little uh, setup. Where we're just explaining to them, many uninformed people, uh, what we do. Uh, we're currently operating in about 25 countries around the world, uh, uh, communities in crisis, uh, in great need. Uh, we have about uh, 1,400 staff operating uh, about 130 aircraft around the world. And uh, yeah, we, we, we do a lot of medical work, uh, um, recovery, food deliveries in crisis situations. And, and often, as in Arche after the tsunami, uh, we become a, just a regular plane in the sky, uh, meeting the needs of the ongoing needs of the communities, redeveloping and, and recovering after crisis. And from in an aviation context, uh, name some of the statistics there in terms of pilots, engineers, their roles, how many... Well, we, uh, well, right now we've got a, a, a shortage. <laughs> we would really like to have uh, 31 more pilots and 12 engineers. Uh, just maintain and expand into those countries which we have been uh, invited to join. Uh, so uh, worldwide, as we work with uh, United States, MAF and uh, UK and New Zealand, the 1400 staff uh, represent pilots, engineers, uh, IT specialists, uh, managers for programs, important people uh, such as overseeing the, the whole engineering of the, the, the whole uh, organisation. Uh, we are very responsible to governments to keep paperwork and, uh, and within the bounds of legislation and that's a, a massive job. So we have a, a team which is uh, very diversified uh, making this work. And can you tell us where you're based across the uh, Asia-Pacific region? Yes, yes, uh, happy to. Uh, we have a headquarters in uh, uh, Mariba, which does a lot of the in- all their engineering, uh, major engineering. 
We have a, a headquarters in uh, Papua New Guinea in Hagen, Mount Hagen, for the Papua New Guinean field. Uh, Dili for East Timor. Gove is our centre for maintenance and organisation in Arnhem Land. Uh, we also have uh, covering organisation in uh, Mongolia. We have an engineer going out there uh, right now. And uh, Bangladesh, we have a Cessna caravan on floats there. We, we actually need another pilot, float plane pilot, to operate that. Uh, we have one out there, or two out there, that are doing a great job, but the demands are ever increasing. And we'd really love to have uh, qualified people to step up there. And you've brought down this beautiful looking beach musketeer. Now, uh, the audience know that I love my vintage aircraft and my warbirds, and uh, this is probably my motive for coming down here to speak to you guys. Ron Watts, this is your aircraft. It is, and I might just say that it's not used uh, to serve in the normal MAF sense. This is a promotional aeroplane that uh, operates in the eastern states of uh, Australia. Um, just raising people's awareness of the fact that the MAF are using aeroplanes in these remote areas. And uh, the interesting part about this aeroplane is that it's been used to set a couple of Australian records. Uh, back in 2011, we wanted to uh, draw attention to the fact that we'd been in Papua New Guinea 60 years. And so we did that by setting a record for the most takeoffs and landings in a day because MAF historically ha operate seven days a week and you know, many takeoffs and landings. Uh, Max was saying earlier that in Papua New Guinea the average flight length is only 18 minutes. And so uh, we wanted to draw attention to that and also to raise money for MAF. So we did that, we set a record of 102. Then again, again in uh, 2013 to uh, once again, uh, draw attention to an anniversary. This time it was the 40 years that MAF have served in Arnhem Land. Uh, valuable work for all those years. And so, uh, once again, we, we set a record, 140 that time. But the amazing part uh, about that, Mike, was that we raised $191,000. And the reason for that was to place a second or to finalise the, the, the payment to place a second MAF aircraft in Timor-Leste and we've done that and the aircraft's there now and it's in service. Very good. Now that's a very uh, out outstanding achievement from the organisation you could say. Well yeah it was a team effort I might, might add. Uh, it wasn't just uh, one person, one. it was uh, very much uh, the work of the MAF staff and uh, I, I give uh, thanks for, the, for all the MAF staff that got behind this but particularly our supporters and we rely on our uh, MAF supporters across Australia to support what MAF, MAF do in prayer and also financially. And can you explain more what other forms of support that MAF receive and require to keep the operation going as it is? Well, certainly, as Max has mentioned, we need staff. We need engineers, we need pilots. And so uh, any people listening that might... Uh, have an interest in mission aviation as a career path, we would love to hear from you. So uh, go to our website, uh, you easily find it, just MAF, and uh, find out there, contact details, and you can, you can uh, speak to us about it. We'd love to hear from you. And can you be, uh, can you explain in more specifics about this aircraft, the uh, Musketeer, from a Avgeek point of view in terms of its uh, specifications and uh, give us some speeds as well. Oh, okay. Look, it's 48 years old. It was the first of this model off the production line. Uh, it's not real quick, about 100 knots through the air, which is uh, about 160 kilometres an hour. It, uh, it'll lift nearly 400 kilos in, in payload. 
but really, it's it's only a it's really a family touring aircraft. It's uh, very different to the aircraft that MAF uh, use, which are really rugged, bushy aeroplanes that can carry a big load and off soft uh, and short airstrips. A friend of the podcast here, Daniel Prouse. G'day, welcome. Good morning, how are you, Mario? I am well, and uh, you're one of the volunteers here with Mission Aviation Fellowship, although you're still new. You are very keen, you're a licence holder yourself. Give us what your experience has been like uh, starting as a volunteer. Yeah, sure. Uh, Being a volunteer has been um, a lot of fun. Um, We've been here since Wednesday helping to set up and get everything ready for the crowds that will no doubt want to come and find out a bit more about us and have a look at our beautiful aircraft that um, Ron flew down for us. And Yeah, so my basically involvement has been through the very channels that Ron was talking about, through the website and, yeah, just wanting to make use of my flying so far and... So the plan for me is to hopefully become a mission pilot with them. In the meantime, I'll be working with the um, Max on the advocacy team for the state and attending various events and generating awareness and hopefully building more connections that way with with people that m- might support me in the future. Uh, as they say, uh, as Ron mentioned, we're very much uh, a support-driven organisation. So when I when it's my turn to fly in the field, I'll need all the support I can get. And Mission Aviation Fellowship provides opportunity as well for a gentleman like you. What, what, name some of the opportunities that, that you are able to be in the running for. Yeah, sure. So, the, the, uh, so um, basically with the flying, you've got th- there's three methods you can get in, in for an Australian pilot. You've got, you can do all your training out at the Mariba training base, which will incorporate um, a Bible college tuition as well. There's also a private centre now that's opened up in Coldstream, ACMA. And again, they're the same. They'll do to incorporate the Bible College tuition. Or you can do it the way that I am, which is training at a private aero club, um, which I'm flying out of TIAB. And I'm also doing my Bible College tuition separately as well uh, via correspondence while holding down a full-time job. You've got a lot on your plate there with the flying and all. Yeah, it's just part of the fun, really. It's Yeah, enjoy the flying, enjoy the, the learning experience, really. And I should add, Daniel and I have been friends for a while. We uh, both have similarities in terms of busy lives and keeping ourselves busy. <laughs> Faith is obviously very important to you folks. How is it in terms of practice within the organisation and in what you do in terms of your uh, motivation? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's basic to our motivation. No, we see service with MAF as being uh, service done uh, to God's people and, and to the Lord himself. And uh, that was my, that's what drove me initially in, in the early 70s to think about serving with MAF. Always loved aeroplanes, committed to the gospel and wanting to see uh, light aircraft used in the service of the gospel of Christ. And uh, I've just been really lucky in the 40-odd years since to be able to combine those two great loves that I have. And that's a substantial amount of service to this organisation. Name some of the experiences you've had, both positive and maybe hair-raising. Well, people have probably seen, uh, you know, parts of Australia, parts of Southeast Asia where we operate, and often that is some of the most difficult parts of the world to, to operate light aircraft. And so we have things like short and steep airstrips, uh, long distances, remote areas, and uh, so probably most MAF pilots have, have got stories of fairly um, interesting experiences in such places, and, and the weather, the terrain, the airstrips, uh, dealing with the local people, 
and, and also operating aircraft safely and efficiently. You know, not an easy thing, but uh, it's, a, it's the sort of work that we've trained for, and then you find yourself doing it week in, week out, and doing it safely, and, and that's the main thing. And tell us what unique experiences that are different from flying mission aviation as opposed to other forms of aviation, both career and uh, recreationally. Well, I, think, I th- personally think it's the best type of flying going. It's, every day is different, every day. Um, you've got a different program, flying to different places, dealing with interesting people, and, and, and flying in, in challenging situations. I sometimes feel sorry for airline pilots, because uh, I think uh, the sort of flying that we've been doing is some of the most interesting flying in the whole wide world. And, and two, I'd say to uh, Micah, that uh, we fly into more destinations than any other airline in the world. And every, every three minutes, one of our aircraft, MAF aircraft, are taken off somewhere in the world uh, on a mission of mercy or just maintaining the routines that the communities have uh, built up. Uh, we, we often are taking in supplies and bringing out sickies uh, on medibacks or being diverted for a medibac operation. And as I say, in, uh, in Timor recently, Timor Este, we did uh, 500 and something medibacks last year, I think it was the number. So uh, it, it's, it's a very fulfilling uh, ministry and work. And I think uh, God calls us to help his hurting creation. And a lot of people living in isolation, how would you like to get sick in the jungle? Mm. Uh, there is no relief, there is no resource except MAF in most of the places we go where they can call out on a radio and we can be there within the hour, yeah. So it's fair to say generally it is un- underestimated the substantial size and Absolutely. quality of your operation. Yes, yes it is. And that's one of my tasks to get around Victoria. Whoever hears this uh, podcast or, or broadcast, do take note. We, we are looking for invitations to any group of people who will uh, be interested in the story of mission aviation. And for those that are listening that are that are almost biting the hook, interested in the organisation, give us some attributes you're looking for. Well, we'd first like to see somebody that is really committed to their faith, to Jesus Christ. I think that's the basis. Uh, we all get very worn and tired doing our own thing, but when we're doing it for the King of Kings, it puts a different aspect to it. We're willing to bear the hardship and the hot climates and the hard work and the long hours quite for a different reason not self-satisfaction or fulfillment but uh, that vocation we've been called to and he enables he doesn't call us to something that we're unable to maintain and so that works well I think too that we need to have people who are dedicated to service Uh, if you lead you need to be a servant and we are we are classed as leaders to most communities as we come in as a doctor or a dentist would be uh, we're professionals, uh, we're highly trained and experienced, justifiably a great expectation by the community for a safe, uh, sensible ride back home or to wherever the destination is. So we need people that are mature as they come towards us, they have a, a real strong sense of uh, direction from uh, God that this is what their lot is. And after 40 years of flying with MAF, I, I hung up my headset four years ago. I thought 71 might be a good time to cease from this activity. <laughs> uh, but I'm very glad that uh, the opportunities uh, come to do PR around Victoria and I head up that now. 
the sort of people we want, okay, would be committed Christian. Definitely you'd have a, uh, you're wired for aviation. It's going to be your thing. You're happy, you're comfortable doing that. Uh, and then uh, a real good uh, ability to um, be with people, talk to people, communicator. Yeah, it's, it's much needed. The people in the bush in New Guinea and our Australian Aborigines are throughout Indonesia where we, we have so many contacts and not living in our world here with all the sophistication. You can just go back a hundred years in most cases. And so we need people that are understanding and tolerant, adjustable, adaptable. Yeah. And where can I get more information and to start the process of uh, becoming involved? That's right. Uh, we have a, a great guy called Curran in, in Borkham Hills in Sydney. On an 1800 free ring number, they can find that on our website or in our literature. Very good. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time to speak to us, and we wish you all the best with uh, your endeavours. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. It's our pleasure. Commander James Borghardt, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be down under. Cool. Mate, uh, you're with the uh, Fire Scout, and uh, we've had uh, folks on talking about the Fire Scout some years ago, Mm -hmm. and uh, back then it was a little sleeker, a little smaller, and now it's looking a heck of a lot like a uh, Jet Ranger. Indeed, it is. It's based on the uh, Bell 407. Uh, We've taken the, uh, the guts and the leather seats out, and we've replaced it with uh, about 300 gallons of fuel and uh, made it autonomous, and uh, now we have a uh, flying UAV. Okay, so I take it that you've built on what was learnt with uh, the A and B models? Absolutely, we've taken uh, the avionics and the uh, automated uh, systems out of the MQ-8B, we've put them uh, into the uh, 407, uh, and what we've uh, really based it on is having the mature system out of the B, adding it to a mature airframe, and, uh, and coming up with the best of both worlds. Okay, so uh, give us a quick overview of what Fire Scout's used for with the U.S. Navy. So the, uh, for the U.S. Navy, uh, what we're most interested in, in is finding out who's out there and what they're up to. Uh, so really ISR, uh, and we uh, primarily use on the MQHC and EOIR uh, pod to do that. And, uh, and that's what we're up for. Okay, so it's primarily ISR eyes. It's, it Indeed. We have weapons and things. Indeed. Uh, we've uh, demonstrated on the MQ-8B a weapons capability, uh, and, uh, and there are plans to eventually put it on the sea. Okay. Uh, but really our priority is, is finding out who's out there. So uh, the, pro- the main reason for going up to the bigger platform was, uh, was that just for endurance, carry more fuel? Absolutely. Uh, we're looking at uh, not only the ability to carry more fuel and, and increase our endurance, but we're also looking at uh, being able to carry larger payloads. Uh, so both the payload and the endurance was really what drove us from, to a new airframe. Okay, so more of a sensor suite and more options for viewing. Absolutely. And so okay. And uh, how are you finding it going? I mean, well, actually, let's roll back one sec. Yeah. It's, it's a jet ranger. It is. As you said, you pull things out. What's yeah. the process of going from, I mean, do you get them green or are we, they... F- we do indeed. We actually buy uh, uh, green airplanes planes from uh, Bell Mirabel up in Canada, and uh, they're actually flown down to uh, uh, Ozark, Alabama, where they, uh, like I mentioned, the seats and the and the man controls are all taken out, and uh, we uh, put in fuel tanks, and uh, then it's shipped over to uh, Moss Point, Mississippi. At Moss Point, uh, they do a fantastic job of adding all the automation. And, uh, and then they're delivered to the government in California, Southern California. Okay. How long does that process take from uh, once the, the 407 lands out at uh, the pad? It's actually uh, surprisingly quick. Uh, we do have some uh, uh, parts that do take a little bit longer to order, 
but uh, once all the parts are on uh, on the on the line, it's about three months from 407 to MQHC. Wow! And uh, what are you, how are you finding it's going? It's, it's is it out of trial or still in trial at the moment? We are just finishing up our trials. Um, we call them our developmental test portion. So uh, we are just finishing that up. We're about 85, 80 to 85 percent complete. Um, we're focused primarily now on payloads to make sure the performance of the payloads hasn't changed uh, with the new airframe. Okay. I've seen some reference to unmanned helicopter systems being used to sling loads and take them deploy stuff. Would you ever do that with this one? The capability certainly does exist. The U.S. Navy uh, has uh, participated in what uh, we call the KMAX program, which is run out of the same program office, which did that uh, with a different airframe. Okay. Um, but uh, the, the RAW 407 does have a sling load capability. Uh, we just have no intent currently to use that. Cool. Anything else you'd like to tell us about uh, where this is going? I think the the big thing for Fire Scout is it's uh, providing uh, the ability for uh, the U.S. Navy to do a tactical ship-based ISR uh, platform to, to help uh, uh, the captain of the ship really understand what's out there and uh, make decisions on a more tactical level. Um, and it's and it's taking that that dull, boring uh, mission away from the manned uh, folks so they, they can really concentrate on what's more important to them, which is uh, is the more operational relevance, SAR, uh, you know, finding submarines uh, and things like that. Okay. So would it be a typical, you might see in the future a, a 407C, sorry, the, uh, the MQ-8C um, alongside something like a Romeo? Or? Oh, absolutely. And that's, in fact, uh, exactly how the U.S. Navy plans to uh, employ. We're going to have... Um, a single aviation debt on a ship, and the same pilots that fly the Romeo will be flying Fire Scout. The same operators that are operating the payloads on the Romeo will also be operating the payloads on Fire Scout. So uh, a typical, like your typical deck would have two helicopters in a hangar. Would this allow like space for three? Because you could, could you squeeze a Fire Scout in between the two? It really depends on the ship class. You know, some ships uh, have larger hangars than others. Um, our program of record for MQHC is really focused on the LCS uh, class ship. That ship does have room for uh, one H60 and one uh, MQHC. So, James, can you tell me how, how you, uh, you know, how you got to where you're at? You're a commander in the Navy. You're uh, leading the program office for the Fire Scout C. Yeah. How'd you get here? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I've been in the U.S. Navy for 20 years now. Uh, I've been a pilot. I've uh, been very fortunate to never leave the cockpit till now. Um, and uh, I've really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed flying. And uh, there's a lot of folks that, that ask me, you know, you're a pilot. What on earth are you thinking? Uh, you're trying to take all our jobs away. And, and again, I, I, I try to point out to them uh, that uh, uh, as a pilot, there are many, plenty of missions out there that I would really rather not do. Uh, and those are, you know, those are, like I mentioned before, the dull and dirty um, work of, uh, of comms relay or data link relay or searching a wide area with nothing to look at. Uh, and that's exactly where the UAS really fits the bill um, and allows, allows me as a pilot to go do uh, more interesting things. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, for the I'm looking forward to the future. I think it's going to be a, a great future. I don't think uh, unmanned platforms will ever uh, uh, completely replace manned platforms. I think there's a complement out there, and, and finding the right mix is really the really the challenge. 
So um, in terms of your career, what got you into the Navy? Uh, interesting question. My, uh, my father was actually Navy and my great-grandfathers, actually both grandfathers, both great-grandfathers uh, were all in the Navy. So I think I was, uh, I was pretty well uh, sorted <laughs> for that. Um, and then uh, I believe it was Flight of the Intruder that really got me into uh, aviation. You know, most people talk about Top Gun, yeah. but I, I, really, uh, I really had no, no, no uh, interest in Top Gun, but uh, Flight of the Intruder was really yeah. the, the piece that put me over the edge and, and wanted me to go, uh, go fly. The A6 was a beautiful aircraft. It was a beautiful airplane, and I missed the uh, the last class for A6 uh, drivers by uh, by uh, months, in fact. So what did you wind up flying? I actually ended up flying uh, E2s and C2s, okay. um, and uh, I uh, I actually had my choice, and uh, and that's what I chose. I, I uh, was most interested in the challenge of flying, and uh, while uh, while many of our combat jets are. Uh, are fun to look at and, and, and are probably more sexy. Uh, they are also uh, designed to be a lot easier to fly. And so uh, I've enjoyed the challenge of flying some of the more difficult airplanes. Yeah, well, COD's not easy. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it is not. So It's big, it's bulky, and it's carrying a lot. That's correct, yeah. absolutely. So you're landing pretty heavy. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, how'd you find that uh, you know, mission profile of E2, though? You're just sitting up there loitering. There's not a lot going on. I'm very familiar with the dull work. <laughs> and so, and so that's what uh, I think uh, gives me a particularly good insight into uh, why UAS is, is such an important part of our future. Well, I think that's about it. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely fantastic, and thanks for uh, having me. Cool. Flying Officer Moulds, we're standing here in the C-17. Welcome to the show. G'day, mate. Uh, yeah, pleasure to have a chat about it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, mate. We're in the C-17, it's uh, operational, we've got uh, the full motion cockpit simulator, we've got the, uh, the load simulator happening, uh, been in lots of theatres of operation with it. How's it all going? How's it standing up? Yeah, it's been great. It's obviously a very capable aircraft. Uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff around the world. Uh, recently we've been doing stuff in Op Okra, uh, so that includes Iraq and the wider Middle East area of operations. We've also been doing, uh, we just bought the Romeos over from America, and that's mainly what we've been concentrating on the, at the moment. This, the major uh, strategic airlift and bringing lots of gear back and forth, yeah? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. what it's good at. It's a big aircraft. Take a lot of stuff a long, yeah. long way. There's all the stuff we used to uh, you know, rent out Antonov space and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So we saved a lot of money in that regard, I guess. Um, but yeah, um, it's been very capable recently, uh, especially taking stuff over to Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, the Middle East area of operations, supporting the wider ADF. It's okay. fantastic in that regard, yeah. So how's it been um, coming together? Like, what, what lessons have been learned from um, the various operations and areas you've been in? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so obviously we've learned how to rapidly deploy uh, six squadrons, some of the fighter guys, uh, into a battle area, uh, namely Iraq. Uh, so we've learned how to do that really quickly. We uh, also learned uh, how to bring over the helicopters, for example, the Seahawks. Um, so the loadmaster's been learning on the job in that regard. Uh, so yeah, it's been really good. How's it been, like, uh, in terms of uh, being a strategic airlifter, uh, you're, not, you're operating out of places like Kandahar and all that. Uh, do you go much further forward, or is it mostly into one of the major bases and then the tacticals take it from there? Yeah, I can't go into it too much, but basically our role is to take uh, heavy stuff over to the Middle East, uh, to our uh, main bases in the Middle East, and from there, either ourselves or the Hercs will take uh, equipment into country as required, uh, and 
Yeah, that's basically what we're specialising in, is taking a lot of stuff uh, from Australia as required. And we're doing that basically every one or two weeks at the moment. Um, that's the tempo of operations we currently have over in the Middle East. Um, so yeah, um, it's been going really well. And as I said earlier, we've been learning on the job, learning how to do it more efficiently, learning how to liaise with the army and all the other players uh, to make it happen as you know efficiently as possible. Yeah, because in the past it'd be a C-130 load, but now we're you know much bigger loads. So you've got potential right. for more than one one division that you're working with yeah yeah that's right that's right so um it's very varied i mean sometimes we'll go over and just drop some stuff off in our main bases in the middle east and then other times where you're required to do some more tactical stuff in country um so yeah and we honestly haven't been doing that much of that over the past couple of years but since iraq and uh op Okra, we've definitely been learning on the job and, and doing a lot more of that stuff so yeah um, but it's all going well so far, yeah. And closer to home, a lot of uh, emergency relief from uh, some of the cyclones and things like that. The C-17 can bring in quite a lot of uh, people to help and equipment and so on. Yeah, that's right. We've uh, obviously had, uh, for example, the WA fires were quite recently. We took a whole lot of fire retardant over to uh, support that operation. Um, we're on standby a lot um, for disaster relief. And as you said, the recent floods uh, up in Darwin, uh, and Queensland, uh, we've been ready to take emergency relief over to that. In fact, I think we might be doing a bit of that this week for Darwin. Yeah, which is great. It's always very rewarding. And again, each mission's different. We'll take tents one day, we'll take fire retardant the next, uh, personnel the next day, you know, um, Oz Aid personnel sometimes, ADF, uh, sorry, uh, federal police personnel. So it's very varied. We have to liaise with a lot of different agencies. So keeps you guessing. Uh, it's very dynamic, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. also very rewarding, as I said. So massive payback on the investment, quite clearly. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's yeah. right, yeah. I, I like to think so, at least, yeah. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, no, thoroughly enjoying the job. It's been fantastic. Uh, I'm one of the more junior guys at the squadron, so it's been a massive learning curve. But, uh, yeah, I could not be more happier. It's very rewarding, and, yeah, it's a fantastic uh, operational platform to fly. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show. No dramas, mate. Thanks very much. Flight Lieutenant Marshall, you're uh, the captain of a C-17. How's it going? Pretty good, actually. Pretty good. Glad yeah. to be at the air show. Yeah. Uh, pretty bloody big aircraft to fly. How'd you get to that point? Uh, yeah, it's very big. The uh, previous aircraft I flew was a little uh, corporate corporate jet, so walking into this thing for the first time was uh, quite an, uh, an awesome sight, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand you transitioned up uh, to the usual thing, CT4, PC9, and then into the BBJ? Uh, it was the CT4, PC9, then I went to the Challenger, which is the smaller, uh, yes, smaller yeah, one yeah. of the two. Yeah, which made the transition to this uh, even even bigger, I guess. Yeah, I thought you were being a little bit tongue-in-cheek saying it was a <laughs> little corporate jet. I thought, yeah, BBJ, yeah, well, yeah. compared to this. <laughs> Challenger was a little sports car, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a monster. That's the 605, isn't it? Uh, 604, we 604, had. 604, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, yeah, a very nice looking aircraft. Yeah, it was a very nice aircraft, actually, and it was um, very fast and, and sleek and slippery. Yeah. Uh, and then coming to this thing, obviously, it's it's a big truck, basically, but yeah. can do a hell of a lot. Yeah. What's the range on the 604? Uh, well, I'm trying to remember now. I'll have to go back. I, I think it's about. 2,000 miles maybe, but that's that's a guess. Oh, yeah, I've, yeah, I can't remember now. Whereas, it's too much to learn on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas with this one, you're uh, going quite the distance, yeah? Yeah, we are going quite the distance, actually. Uh, obviously, all dependent on, on cargo, but um, with the full fuel load, this being the ER version, which was the, the second variant of, of the jet, uh, we can get 11 hours out of it easy. Yeah, uh, being in Australia and away from everywhere, we kind of need that extended range, don't we? Yeah, that's right. And that's only going to get bigger too with the advent of uh, air-to-air refuelling, which we're starting to do training with uh, this year, actually. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, I've heard a rather amusing phrase from uh, the Air Commodore who's been running the uh, MRTT program yesterday and uh, can uh, take it beyond the uh, in, beyond the sense of humour of most crews. Yeah, well, I think 11 to 12 hours and this thing's already beyond my sense of humour, <laughs> so that's only going to get worse. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's going to provide an incredible uh, capability for, for the Air Force. Yeah, much is certain. So, uh, speaking of that capability, uh, we're talking with uh, Flying Officer Moulds just before about uh, some of the lessons learned and how it's uh, operating. Uh, we, uh, we've gone through, we've stood up a simulator for both the, the cockpit crew and the loadies. How's it all working out from your perspective and actually you know, getting the thing, the rubber on the tarmac and up into the air, how, how's it working out? Uh, incredibly well actually. Um, obviously any new acquisition is going to take time and uh, crews are going to have to get used to the new technologies in particular with this aircraft. Uh, now that we've got the uh, simulators based in Australia, it makes our training uh, a lot easier and um, we can get recurrent a lot quicker as well. Guys are now just, uh, whenever they need to retrain on a, a newer capability, such as air-to-air -air refueling, we run across the road to the simulator and then can train on it. In previous years, it's been flights across the US, which is very, very expensive um, and, and a lot harder to achieve on a more regular basis. So it just makes uh, getting crews trained and getting the aircraft in the air a lot quicker, a lot yeah, easier. Yeah. Definitely, the logistics of training is, is uh, reduced a lot. Training is quite often the, one of the largest burdens that uh, any organisation has, and us in particular, with new acquisitions that we've had and and plus keeping crews trained, uh, especially for the wide variety of, of tasks and environments that we work in, it's important that we need to keep training and, and, and keep working, and that, this just makes it a lot easier now. Oh, yeah. Well, we've seen that, you know, like, you're operating into the Middle East area, you're doing the large uh, tactical transport, you're then further deploying as required in that area. Yep. You're doing a lot of disaster relief and humanitarian stuff That's back right. here in our local backyard. What are the lessons being learnt? Uh, what, what are some of the highlights that you've had from um, from your work on the C-17? Uh, some of the uh, the highlights I've had, and the things that I really enjoy most is moving really big loads. Uh, it's when, when you get this cargo, I mean it's a big cargo compartment now and it's empty, when you see it full of stuff you really feel like you're achieving something. Um, not long ago I was uh, in America picking up some new, uh, new helicopters for the Navy uh, and putting those down the back, it's, it's an incredible sight seeing those being dragged across the ocean. You got two in here or just one per? Uh, on, that, on that day we only had the one but yeah we can fit two in, yeah, yeah. and looking at it now it's hard to, it's hard to imagine how we do it. But, yeah. It's a folding tail boom. Huh? Folding tail boom. And to be honest, by the time we got it off the jet, it was up and running within the hour. So it's an incredible capability to be able to, to achieve that. You can take in a helicopter anywhere in the world and have it running within an hour. Yeah, rather than that full strip down they used to have to do. That's right, that's yeah. right, yeah. And uh, that, I love that. I love the uh, bubble window in the back of the flight deck there, and you're able to look down. And I've enjoyed that view a few times on yeah. the C-17. Yeah, it's 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 good. Obviously, uh, I'd like to look at it a bit more often, but I'm always looking forward. But uh, it's it's very handy actually for manoeuvring on the ground when the when the loadmasters are down the back here with the ramp down. Um, if we're doing reversing, because obviously we can reverse and get into tight tight spots. Um, yeah, you can stick your head out the window, and it's quite a in interesting view. <laughs> yeah, well, that is a point because yeah, usually you've got the loadies telling you left a bit, right a bit type of thing, but uh, right. now yeah. you can actually see. Yeah, you can actually see, which obviously we're not going to use that. We go off the load masters with them in the troop doors, but um, yeah, it's it's incredible if you're uh, an extra pilot and looking out the back there during an airdrop sortie and watching stuff go flying out the back. Yeah, that's impressive to watch. So have the um, have the operational pro like your procedures and all that been refined much since uh, you've gone into so-called into production? You might say. Uh, not really, no. This, I mean, this aircraft came uh, into service, I think, early 90s with the, with the US Air Force. Um, so they've learnt a hell of a lot over that time period. So by the time we've picked up the aircraft, um, most of the lessons have been learnt. I mean, I'm sure aviation being what it is, you learn something every day. But uh, they've operated the jet very effectively for a number of years now. And we essentially uh, piggybacked off them with, with all the procedures. Um, 
which is what made the acquisition so smooth. Um, you know, the jets were ready to go, they'd been operated. Um, the training they provided was very good and we were up and running with very, very quickly. Okay. Anything else you'd like to say about uh, C-17 operations? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that pretty much says it all. Yeah. Okay, thanks, mate. Cheers, thank you. Psycho Drums Band that uh, the Air Force have brought to Avalon. Big drum beats from the bottom of the heart, and I, we want to tell the, the big drum beat to inspire people to know the beauty of what I call. Yep, and how many band members have you okay. brought to Avalon? Twenty-five people in the drum uh, team. And what are their backgrounds in the Air Force? We all work for the military, which is located in Iruma Air Base in Japan. We all have specialties with um, some work with aircraft maintenance some in supply and others in general affairs. Yep. Do you get to travel around with the Air Force? And what, if you have, what places have you been to? United Kingdom. One time. Just one time, we got to uh, get to perform at the International Royal Air Tattoo which was an air, air show held at Royal Air Force, uh, Fairford, in the United Kingdom. Yep. And the Japanese, your presence here has been very kind, very welcoming to everyone here at Avalon. What is it that you people want to show here in Australia, both to Australians and to others from other nations? ここ最近来たことに通してどういうことをあのこれから先望んでいきますか。え、国際交流がもっと日本自衛隊のことをいろんな国にしてもらって、自衛隊はこういう素晴らしいものだとま、対抗というこういう素晴らしい文化もあります
participated in the Avalon uh, air show. Tell us a bit about the KC-767. What differences does it have to the passenger 767? Uh, mostly the, the KC-767 is modified from the Boeing 767 for the refuel. So KC-767 has room for refueling and uh, uh, we have we have Ralos system that for the remote uh, remote air refueling system that we had the, the display on the cockpit for the refueling monitoring refueling and uh, as same as the, uh, the commercial Boeing 767 for the fuel tank the KC has the same capacity as the Boeing 767. And what does the Japan Air Self Defense Force KC-767 used for transport and refueling? Any other purposes? Um, no, just the transport and the refueling. And you flew down from Japan? When? Uh, yeah. Oh. How, long, how long does it take to oh, fly from it, Japan? It took for the, the 10 and a half hours from Japan. One, one way? One, yeah, one way. Yep. And... Uh, how many people does this aircraft seat? Uh, this flight for this flight? Pas- passengers. Passengers. Oh, so the crew, uh, crew is uh, 15 and the passenger is the drum team, the 25, 25, 28, 20, 28 people. Do you want to talk, tell us about yourself, your background and what got you into uh, the Air Force? My, my background? Uh, I graduated the uh, Kante school. Uh, after that, I, I flew the C1 Kawasaki twin-engine cargo, and uh, I, I after that uh, I graduated from the test pilot course, and uh, I, I went to the uh, I the Boeing company in the Seattle for training the Boeing 767 for the. The cases uh, for the flying the KC 767, the first KC 767. So yeah. I, I tested the KC 767 in, in Japan, the first KC 767 in Japan. How many KC 767s are there in Japan? In Japan, four, four KC 767. And uh, how many pilots? I'm a pilot, well, it's uh, not sure. Uh, about about uh, 10 or how many pilots have you brought to Avalon? How many crew? Uh, four pilots and four loadmaster and uh, five maintenance and two assistants. Yep. And how many total uh, service people from uh, Japan? That's all of them or do you have any more band members? And... Uh, sorry. Um, uh, how many people total? Total. Yep. To- total uh, 15 and uh, 28. 38 plus 15... 43. 40, 43, yeah, 43. <laughs> 43, okay. It's a beautiful aircraft, and it's a great performance from your band. Thank you for speaking to us today, and we hope you enjoy the rest of Avalon. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we, we are enjoying this uh, air show, and I'm looking forward to the more enjoyment. Right. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Tim Allsop, great to have you on the show at last. How are you going? It's uh, fantastic to be talking to you after listening to it for so uh, for so long. <laughs> I got to say, it blew me away when we caught up at Three Squadron Rooms in Williamtown. And oh yeah, I'm a listener. Really? That's scary, <laughs> man. <laughs> it says something about my personality, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, geek. <laughs> <laughs> cool, mate. Now uh, we're hanging out down here at um, East Sale, and uh, you're getting ready to go out and fly a demo for us. Uh, you're going to go and practice the uh, handling display you're going to do over TIAB. Yeah, that's right. So we're down here um, in sale. We're supporting uh, the TIAB Air Show, uh, which is, which is uh, very fortunate that that's, that's managed to work because we've got, uh, we had the centenary military aviation last week um, that Three Squadron supported with the, uh, the Purple Cobras. And then uh, next week we have another um, uh, big task down here. In fact, we've got a couple of tasks. So the opportunity presented itself uh, to effectively come and support the Thai Air Show um, for, uh, for for zero impact. Yeah, no, that's great. And I must say the uh, Purple Cobras look pretty good at the uh, centenary. It was a lot of fun. Cook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah there's a lot of beating up at the airport and flares popping. And <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, I believe that uh, Thaiab has a bit of a special place for you. Uh, you learned to fly there. Yeah, I did. It's, um, I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, um, in, in Mornington itself, actually. And... Uh, uh, one of my earliest memories is actually going to the Thai Bear Show, and I, I would say that would have been in about 1977 or so. Um, <laughs> in the midst of time. In the midst of time. Um, I was a very young tacker at that stage, and uh, I remember seeing a lot of the the, uh, the old types flying around, and, and um, I particularly remember a remote control minty bomber that flew over the kids and dropped minties on them. I don't know quite know how we got away with that legally, but, uh, but that stick to, <laughs> stuck in my head pretty well. Yeah, so I, um, I then uh, actually started with a bit of gliding in Benalla, because that's all I could afford, yeah. pushing, pushing trolleys around in Safeway. And then uh, um, I then, I was really lucky to get uh, a little bit of help through the Royal Vic Aero Club in Moorabbin yep. uh, with a, a thing called the, the Reg Anset Scholarship, um, which got me just at a basic level. And from there, um, moved down to Tyre and spent a, a couple of years, a couple of glorious years, uh, beating around there in uh, in 150s and and uh, 172s. So you uh, you flew the the 150s and 172s and so on at Tyre. What inspired you to fly? Was it actually seeing the aircraft? Ah, oh, look, it, <laughs> there's a whole lot of reasons. A whole uh, there's a whole series, I think, of of things that happened that 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 led me down this path. Um, one of the Again, one of the early ones was a mate of my old man's, a guy called Mark Abacare, who's a who's an avid Thaiab um, lighty pilot from years ago. He's got a he's got a Mooney down there, um, and I remember flying with him uh, and Dad when I must have been young. And again, you know, just barely seeing over the side of a um, the, the rail to see outside, um, but that blew me away. Um, and he and Dad were always talking about aeroplanes and, and loved it. Dad, Dad did a little bit of flying, um, but sort of never took it anywhere. 
and then obviously the, the air show, and then um, I, in about 98, I remember going up to the, I took a bus overnight from, from Mornington to Sydney to stay with my cousin, and we went to the, the, the RAF Bicentennial Air Show um, out at Richmond, and that was an event, that was incredible. Um, and that was probably the first time I saw the Hornets. Uh, they would have been pretty young then, only, only just come out. been around for about two years in Australia. Uh, and they put on a fantastic display. Um, and I was talking to my cousin at the time, who, who uh, you know, wise old age, of, he was probably about 23. And uh, I was saying, oh, I think I'm gonna be an engineer, I'm gonna do this, I don't really know what I wanna do with my life, but I love flying, maybe I'll go and join the airlines. This is as the Hornets were screaming overhead, um, doing, a, doing a mock attack. And he said, what are you thinking? Why don't you go and do that? Yeah. And the thought kind of stuck. And from there, it was back home to Tayab and then up to Benalla. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I know, know Benalla reasonably well. I, we've got a base there for the balloons. Right. The Victorian balloonatics have a demountable. Yep. And uh, we go and stay there and sometimes launch and land there if we've got right. missions. And, yep. Yeah, so, yep. so how did you... Um, was it the gliding? You, you got into gliding because uh, that was the cheaper option. It, look, it was. So I, you know, I worked at Safeways in Mel- in Mornington as soon as I could, and at various other jobs. Um, and unfortunately, you know, powered flying was just prohibitively expensive at that stage. You know, you still you look at two or three thousand back then to get to the level you needed to. I just didn't have that sort of money at four dollars ninety nine an hour. Um, so I, um, I managed to save enough to go and do a gliding course. Um, for about a week and again that was just another another hook in you know once I'd done that I was, I was absolutely um, passionate about the, the whole flying gig um, and I guess I, I didn't realise how much I'd grow to love gliding now I haven't done it for years um, I did I did go as a passenger a couple of years ago over in the UK and it, it made me realise I need to go back and do more of that that pure flying yeah very pure yeah. Steve was just interviewing Kath uh, right, Air Marshal Brown. Yep, and yeah, he goes off and goes. Oh, he's a gliding yeah. nut. Yeah, yeah. he yep. says he goes and does a competition, gets about forty or fifty hours. That's it, done for the year. Yep. Right off. Yep. <laughs> so you, you you graduated with your private pilots out of Tyab? Uh, no, I, I actually graduated with my with my restricted license, as it was called then, uh, out of um, uh, out of Royal Vic in Moravan. Um and it was purely. I love Royal Vic. I'm still still very involved with them, um, uh, but just the tyranny of distance from Mornington that uh, you know that that two-hour trek up the um, on the bus and then and then onto the onto the uh, the train and then from Frankston and I had to actually walk down there from from yes. uh, from there at that point um, without a license so uh, tired became a great place to go uh, and I ended up I ended up loving the just the scene at Tyab. It's just again passionate local aviators um, it was a really good good bunch of instructors and other um, sort of young budding pilots I guess at that stage and we had a fantastic time socially as well as as well as uh, as, as in the air um, and uh, I think back to you know the main guy I remember is a guy called Mick Cook who ended up then stepping into oh, I think it was Qantas uh, up north um, and I believe he's now a uh, probably a virgin captain uh, somewhere um, and has done very well for himself okay. so uh you were flying there, um, having a lot of fun. Yep. The logical next step, uh, you decided to fly to the Air Force? Yeah, that's right. I guess, because I, I was going to uni at the same time, I guess. So I finished school and I, I went to uni just to try and work out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, uh, and it was during that time that I sort of slowly built up hours 
uh, both at Royal Vic and at Tyre by scamming money out of anyone who'd listen, 20 bucks here and there to go, uh, to go flying for half an hour. Um, and progressively the Air Force became more and more what I wanted to do, the more I looked into it. And, and I was very lucky to have um, some guys from, or one of the guys particularly from school, uh, a couple of years ahead who joined the army as a pilot and he took the time out one day for a, a couple of hours um, down in Mornington just to talk me through the reality of military aviating and comparing, you know, removing it from the Hollywood mm. um, perceptions um, and, and it took a lot of the mystique away and, and made me realise it, the lifestyle is actually just as great as the, as the flying the jets. Um, so that was, that was, uh, that was great. Um, and then um, the application process took a while. So I, I guess I finished uni in about 92 um, out of Melbourne. And then that next six months worked in, worked in the Royal Hotel in Mornington and, and various other places while I waited for uh, the application process to work. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the letter came and it was on within uh, about two weeks. Uh, so about mid-93 mid is when I started. Yeah, keep you dangling, keep you dangling. That's and right. Now. <laughs> yeah, drop everything and run. Yeah. <laughs> Which I was more than happy to do yeah. right there. Oh, yeah. So you, um, I guess you progressed through the usual routine, the CT4, was it the Mackie? Um, I was about to say I'm not that old, but actually I am that old. Uh, I, I was an all-through PC9 guy. Yeah. So I did, I did flight screening at Tamworth, as I do now. Uh, for two weeks um, and actually ended up the, some of the guys and girls that we met in that week as um, people I'm still still friends with now um, then from there straight to Pierce um, once we'd finished officer training school at Point Cook uh, so it was great to go back there last weekend and and, 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 and uh, you know be back back at the start um, a bit of aviation medicine training which at that time was at Point Cook as well and then up to Townsville for three weeks of combat survival training um, and catching snakes and all that good stuff uh, and uh, then across to Pierce and so about a year and a bit in Pierce um, uh, on the PC-9 from there lucky enough to get selected for jets over the road at 25 squadron so a bit of Mackie across to across to Williamtown then to 76 squadron as you still do now um, on the Mackie again although now it's obviously the Hawk uh, and then through to 2OCU and off to the races yeah did you find that uh, having already got your licence, you're restricted and so on, really helped and that passed you through um, the, the, the basic section um, quickly? Look, probably not. Uh, I, I, I only had about 90 hours total time uh, powered by the time I got there. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of an adage or a bit of a, um, I, I guess, a, um, a wives' tale that, that generally... People with less hours uh, work harder at the starter pilots course um, because it's it's all new to them. But they then learn, I guess, the the RAF or the military techniques um, uh, because they're fresh. They're, they're uh, you know they're empty vessels. Um, we have sometimes you get guys who turn up with two, three, four thousand hours who are incredibly uh, good at the first part of the uh, of the course. But sometimes as the as the course progresses and you get to the the more difficult. Um, really missionised training at the end. Sometimes that that becomes a struggle for them. Now that that's not to say that happens for everyone. We had a guy like that with two thousand hours on my course, and he was just a guru. He, he blitzed the whole thing. So um, you know, it's all it's always generalisations. Yep. Understood. Um, okay. The so you got through two OCU. 
Did you go to 75 after that? Or no, I, I went to 77, so I stayed in, uh, in Williamtown um, for a couple of years. Um, I did uh, two years there, and then I was sent off with a, a bunch of others at the time to a CFS down here to do instructor's course, um, and then over to 2FTS in Pierce, so did a full circle, back to Pierce for about a year and a half teaching. And I've got to say, that was a blast. Uh, I saw two courses through, and um, you're under a lot less stress, I guess, when you're, when you're there as an instructor. Um, again, the world's, or the, the, the moon's all aligned, and we ended up with a, a, a great crew there at the time, uh, and, and a, lot of, a lot of fun times. Um, and, and the satisfaction from an instructor, instructional point of view of, of taking these raw, you know, you raw young guys and girls and stepping them very gradually because it's a tiny stepping stone approach. You know, we, day one is which direction to sit in the seat. You know, it's, it, it, there's no assumed knowledge. Um, hopefully you know how to sit in the seat. That would help. But, um, you know, to take them from that point to the last day where, or the last few weeks where we're sending them out as a pair, um, they're planning it, they're briefing it, they're flying... Uh, in formation for a while at high level they'll then drop to low level split into pairs into uh, into singles they'll do their own low navigation routes around the back blocks of WA so just just um, dirt tracks and, and windmills and, and sheep um, as references then join up 45 minutes later at exactly the right place at the pre-briefed altitudes plus or minus 15 seconds over another um, dodgy road junction and then navigate as a pair to a target and they have to hit that target within 15 seconds of a, of a nominated time all the while the guys in the back are throwing all sorts of problems at them they're, they're giving them diversions on route that they haven't planned they're, they're giving them um, you know simulated surface to air missiles that are launching to try and get their get their gyros toppled and, and, and have them spearing off in the wrong direction which I certainly did once or twice um, and then uh, and then to see them then pass wings um, with the, the chief flying instructor or the CO and uh, and sort of walk out after about a year and a half is is, is just fantastic. Yeah, uh, it's, it's good to give back. Okay, and so then after um, back at Pierce as an instructor and so on, what what came after that? What did I do then? I then uh, I stepped. I, I caught the last six months of Mackie before that was disbanded. Um, again, that was that was fun because everyone's eyes were on Hawk and uh, we had a we had a blast. Um, most memorably, seeing how many rounds we could stick in the minigun pods uh, and uh, get away in one burst. I think it was 800 rounds in a burst uh, at the at the at the, the air-to-surface air target. Um, and then, uh, sadly, delivering the, the saddest bit was actually delivering those things down to down to Wagga. Um, the, the route we used was down the coast from Newcastle down to the Heads, um, down around the, the Hawkesbury uh, mouth of the Hawkesbury, and then up the Hawkesbury River. Into the mountains through Katoomba, and then lob these things into uh, into into Wagga, to the RAF base there, and just knowing that you're shutting down an aircraft for the last time, yeah. maybe the last time this thing ever flies. Yeah, um, yeah, um, but it was fun. And then we then uh, from there, I was meant to go back to the jet, um, but uh, Hawk had started up. We needed more people there, so I was given a shot to fly Hawk for about a year and a half, I think it was. And that was great fun. You know, that, that thing is a sports car. That's, mm. That was that was a really fun little aeroplane to fly. Um, and from there, back to three squadron for uh, another couple of years. Uh, and then I took um, asked to go up to Tyndall, up to seventy five as a flight commander. Uh, and that was um, yeah, that was 
great flying. Magpies, you know, it's a, it, it's a brilliant squadron. Um, the location's fantastic. You know, you, you just get into that whole camping uh, life. You go to Darwin all the time. You can get to, you can get to Singapore, um, you know, for holidays for quicker than you can get to Melbourne. Um, uh, and uh, again, a very, a very social area, both uh, at work and also at home. Um, yeah. Okay. And now Wing Commander and uh, running Three Squadron. Yeah, that's right. Best job in the world. Cool. So, um, you know, I stepped, stepped through a, a couple more jobs there, sort of spent some time in Canberra, which was, yeah. uh, which is interesting. Um, there would have been some uh, mahogany bomber. Mahogany, mahogany, mahogany bombing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, interesting. Someone, someone's got to do it. That's yeah. what I have to tell the young guys, you know. It's like a staff officer and grooming you to go. Ah, uh, look, it was, uh, I don't know about that. It was more about, I was the, the, the Hornet planner for, for, the, for the Air Force. So my job was to plan the exercises like pitch black and Thai boomerang and the Malaysian stuff and, uh, you know, domestic exercises for all of the, all the Hornet squadrons. Uh, in fact, also for the Hawks and at, at times F-111s at the time. Um, it really showed me how much trust we put in young people. Um, as, a, as a junior squadron leader, the buck stopped uh, you know, uh, in, in that job and uh, you, you made decisions that, that affected the training program and the effectiveness of that training program uh, for the next couple of years. A lot of work, uh, a lot of great travel uh, at the time. Got to go to, got to go to Alaska twice in the middle of winter, minus 40 and you know, on the, we had, a, we had a, a day off there which was nice and we ended up um, skidooing up the, up the Chenna River. Cool. Um, uh, you know, all, just all sorts of experiences, uh, Malaysia and uh, the US a number of times for red flag planning. Um, so uh, really interesting job. Um, then I deployed for a little bit to um, Afghanistan uh, in, a, in a sort of a support role on the ground with the ground forces. Uh, over to the UK for a year for a, for a staff college and then, uh, then into this job effectively through, a, through another staff job in, um, in, New, in Newcastle. Cool. Okay, well that's pretty much covered the career. David, did you have any other questions? Yeah, I suppose just general stuff too. Yeah. So comparing the Hornet, how is it to fly those compared to the other Mackies and the Hawks? Yeah, yeah, um, look, it's, I guess from pure flying an aircraft, it's, they're all, they're all similar. You pull the stick back, as I say, the small, the houses get smaller. And yeah. push forward, the houses get bigger. Um, so the basics are similar, but every aircraft Feels very different, and you know, the combination of, I guess, the, the, the thrust you got available, power, the, the sort of the feel of the, the weight in the stick, the um, the way it the way it flies. Now, this uh, the Hornet is just incredible to fly. It, it, it just um, it just sort of dances. Um, now, it depends what configuration you're in. So, uh, as I'm about to do, go and fly a, a jet which is just has a centre line. In fact, an empty centre line today. It's very light, it's, you know, it's really agile, and our, our manoeuvring boundaries, in some senses, are un, unrestricted. I can, I can fly this thing at, at any angle of attack um, without exceeding the, the design specs um, when I've got a fair bit of fuel. If I get below um, uh, about, oh, what's that, about, about 30% fuel, then I'm limited a little bit in, in, the, in the angle of attack I can fly this thing at. Um, if you load it up, so for a, a combat type um, load, so now you're carrying external fuel tanks, missiles, uh, and bombs, then it's a whole different aeroplane. It's far more, far more sluggish. Uh, it still it still flies nicely, but it's noticeably heavier, and you have to be far more um, controlled in the way you, you fly the thing. Um, 
Uh, obviously, once you release those those bombs, get rid of that weight and burn the fuel down, it'll get more and more agile um, as you go. So I guess you have to temper your uh, your tactics even, depending on, on, on what sort of config you're flying in, because you, you may not be able to get yourself out of certain situations um, that you could otherwise do in a, in a light jet. And so with the displays, so how, how often do you, would you do displays in, in, in the water? Oh look, it's very rare. So this is, um, we're doing effectively three weeks of it at the moment. Uh, three Squadron yeah. has been given that gig purely because um, 77 have, have literally just got back from uh, Red Flag, which is a very, very important exercise for the, for the Air Force. And we send people from all the squadrons to that. Um, and there's some uh, really high end training we get from that, uh, that activity. So that was the priority. Uh, 75 have just got back from Guam um, doing a, a similar large force activity with the US and the, uh, the Japanese. Uh, and again, very successful uh, outcomes from that. And they took a couple of our guys as well. So three, we've been left with uh, basically a core supervision team. So me, the XO, and one of the flight commanders. And we've taken on um, a number of the new graduate pilots who have just stepped out of uh, 2OCU. Um, and we're doing a, a tailored program for, for these few months um, to, uh, to get their air-to-air combat skills um, uh, to a high level. Um, but it also means that we're available to do the, the display. So effectively, this is the only other display I've ever done in my career would have been the 98 Grand Prix, which is a, you know, as a young guy, the handling display there, that was fun. Um, but we don't, we don't do this very often. Um, now we do have a display, a Hornet display aircraft. At the moment, that's the Super Hornet. So we share that. Yeah. There's no point having a Super and a Classic display pilot because there's so much work goes into it and so many resources to get this guy qualified to fly down to very low level um, that it's quite counterproductive. Um, so uh, at the moment, uh, as we saw at uh, CMA last week, uh, the Supers have got that um, uh, and they did a great job. But I imagine to the, uh, the Hornets, they get a bit, a bit of attention, always get a bit, bit of pop, positive, uh, positive responses, I'd imagine. Not that like they do many displays. Yeah, that's right. That, that's right. And it's really what we're after here is is both giving the public a feel for, for hey, what their taxes are, uh, are paying for, yeah. um, but also to ideally inspire the next generation. So if we can, you know, if we've got one 8, 10, 12-year-old at Tyab uh, on Sunday who looks up and goes, wow, that looks like fun. I want to do that. I'm, I'm going to put the yards in to, to get to that point, then we've done our job. Um, you know, and if you talk to most of the guys in the squadron, they'll all give you a similar story about, about some point in their life where they, 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 they saw that or heard that and, uh, and made that decision. So you said you were here at uh, CFS for a little while? Yeah, so you absolutely. Yeah, back in 98. Uh, I was on, on, on the instructor's course in 98. Um, about five months. Um, and again, great, great times. Uh, a bit of a reunion, actually. You, you end up catching up with guys you haven't seen for, for a few years that you, you've passed, and they've gone off and flown, uh, you know, Hercs and P3s yeah. and and uh, and all sorts of other types. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, you learn, uh, I guess, military, the military instructional technique, airborne instructional technique, um, which was uh, which is great. And um, uh, again, you know, just a. a, a um, a great chance to sort of take, I guess, your, um, your qualifications to, 
to the next step um, that, that recognise instructional qualification. Very, very professional in, environment over there. All right, so again, we'll, we'll step through the display. Um, and as I said before, this is a it's, a, it's classified as a handling display, not, a, not an aerobatic display. So we're not, we're not doing the full up, worked up, uh, you know, inverted at low level uh, type, uh, type manoeuvres, because that, that is a huge impost to, to work up to that. Um, and right now, uh, within Air Combat Group, it's the Super Hornets have, have the, the display gig. Um, and the idea is they'll do it for about a year um, with tones, and uh, then they'll hand it across probably back to 81 Wing in time for, for example, Avalon next year. Uh, with any luck, so there'll be a thousand people, um, you know, lined up ready to murder their grandmothers to um, to get that gig. Um, and generally, it goes to someone at OCU because those guys, uh, you know, are very experienced, have a, have enough time on the jet to do this uh, sort of safely, and and, and uh, it's also a great deal uh, for for those guys. So the display we've put together here is designed to to capture just elements of what the F-18 does and the, the really unique characteristics which, for example, the ability to point the nose very rapidly at an adversary um, and, ch and change direction and also to fly at very high angles of attack, far more than a, an, a normal aeroplane. You know, above 16 degrees uh, angle of attack, normally an aeroplane will be stalled. For an F-18, depending on your configuration, you can be at or unlimited angle of attack and you won't actually be stalled but you will be slowing down very, very rapidly. I'm talking in the order of 50, 60, 70 knots per second is how slow you, how fast you're slowing down. And like all aircraft, you'd love to have a bit more power, but still very, very useful to be able to do that in certain exam certain situations. Where we will do that, I guess, to draw a parallel to uh, one of our roles, which is which is air-to-air -air combat. Um, remembering the F-18 does everything. That's why Australia has it, because um, we're not a very big air force, but we need to be able to do all the jobs. A dogfight with a, another adversary where you are in a position of advantage, potentially, my ability to consciously cash in the energy I have and point my nose in front of where he is right now so that by the time he gets there, my 20 millimeter rounds are arriving at that bit of sky is very valuable. I have to be very careful of that because I might have fought very hard to get to that position of advantage. And if I pull a lot of alpha at the wrong time, suddenly I'm at a very, very suboptimal speed and he will eat me up. Someone like an F-16, will take advantage of that in a flash if, if you don't kill them prior. Because comparatively, other aircraft uh, often have a bit more, bit more power than us. So the display tries to show um, some high G stuff, some, some high speed passes, and we're limited through our regulations to 550 knots and 200 feet clear of obstacles. And it also shows some slower speed maneuverability and that ability to point uh, the nose or change the nose's direction very quickly. So if I step through uh, the, the plan and you'll see that it's really just made of component parts which are things we'll do day to day in various parts of the, uh, the job. So the arrival um, for Tyab, Tyab's uh, 3517 for the main runway there, it's a thousand metres long and we're just looking at the Peninsula Railway Club's little gouge pad that, they, uh, that I grabbed from their, their desk at Christmas time when I was down there last year. The display line we're working to is going to be just on the eastern side of that, sorry, is where the crowd is, and then we're looking for about 200 metres from the, or 200 metres or more from the crowd line. Um, the reference on the ground that we looked at this morning, we went over, overhead at, at uh, just slowly at about 2,500 um, to have a look, is uh, Judy Pay's hangar, um, and there's a big concrete mixing area just near there. That gives me a great reference. We've got a lot of open space there to the west, 
that kind of encompasses the cross runway there, uh, 0826, which, which we can't use. And then very conscious that if we go any further west, we're starting to get into that sort of semi-rural area hobby farm. So the whole display, you'll notice on each of these in the diagrams I've got here, all of the turns climb and we put ourselves at a thousand feet or higher any time we're going to be on the opposite side of the circle. And the whole idea is to try and minimise noise uh, while, we're, while we're doing the show. So we're not roaring over people's houses at, at 200 feet because, as we all know, noise is such an issue at so many GA airfields and the last thing we want to do is go and create a problem for, for, for Tyre when really we're down there to try and you know, give it a bit of a bit of a jab and, and show support to GA because we rely so heavily on GA as a feeder. That's where we, where we get all of our, all of our recruits or a lot of our recruits. Righto, so into the display itself. Uh, holding from here, I'm going to start here uh, probably, I'll, I'll start in enough time at sale so that I can get into, I can get the jet running, I can get all the critical systems up and running early. And the main things I'm after there are the, uh, the flight controls, the flight control computers, make sure that they're working for me in the hydraulics. Gives me enough time to do a of some basic troubleshooting of those if it isn't playing the game that day. And there's all sorts of things. One of them is pretty much just a control or delete called a Mac Air restart or a double Jenny, where we literally just turn the Jennies off and then on again, and it just kicks it in the guts and, and gets the ones and zeros flowing again. Um, that fixes 99% of everything in the F-18. Then I've got the ability also, if I start early enough, to jump into the spare jet. So we did bring down uh, 55 as well as uh, aircraft 13, which I'll do the, be the primary display jet. That means um, I guess I'll taxi quite early and I now have to balance up the amount of fuel I'm burning on the ground compared to the risk of not actually getting there at all. And really on the ground, it's, it's negligible. So I'm, I'm burning about 700 pounds an hour per side. Um, and one thing I can do is just shut down the left if I'm gonna be a while. The right-hand engine runs, you know, all my sort of secondary system, solar brakes and the noticeable steering and stuff. So I, I don't end up just rolling off into the distance. And then just prior to going, you can, you know, re-crank the, the left engine. I can do that by actually just pushing a bunch of air through the right engine, just winding it up to about 82%, and then cross-bleed starting the other engine. Um, or I can use the the auxiliary power unit down the back. I plan, I'll probably get out of here half an hour early. The transit is fairly quick, but again, if I get out of here early enough, I've got time to have a bit of a look at the weather, look at the cloud base, get a feel using the systems, using radar, using just talking to air traffic about who else is out there. Because one of the things we've looked at in the planning for this, which has been pretty extensive, and running through a, a very formal risk management process and developing a risk management plan, which is specifically for tyre, is the the, the fact that we can't control aircraft that aren't related to type. So lighties can be out there and there's nothing we can do about it. We just need to have time to, to, have to classify, detect them, classify them. And if I need to then delay the show because he's fumbling over, over type, then we can do that. But, but we won't just barrel in to, to make a TOT. So that's going to put me over the initial point, the IP, which is going to be the western edge of Phillip Island. So about 15 miles to the south out of the way of the Phillip Island um, airfield itself. Keeps us away from the, um, the, sort of the environmental areas with the penguins and stuff down there, so I'll just stay over water. And it also keeps us away from the West Head Gunnery Range. Don't really need them having a bit of free practice. Uh, the run in then, 15 miles, so that gives me a, about a one and a half minute run in, if you like, maybe a two minute run in, because it'll start slowly, the run in. At the moment, the TOT is, uh, the time on target is, is uh, 15.30 overhead. That's going to change on the day, potentially. So really, at this point, I'm talking to the air boss, uh, who's down on the ground on, on the CTAF there, 128.0. I'll be talking at that stage also. Now, thinking all the way forward to the end of this, the display for the vertical departure, 
So talking to Melbourne and making sure I'm coordinating my clearance because I need a I need a basically a funnel of airspace within five miles of, of Tyab that goes up to um, well I, I, I can get away with just fifteen thousand for this for the vertical departure, and I'll take higher if I can get it. But fifteen's enough to to not compromise uh, the the Melbourne picture too much for air traffic. It's too late or it's it's really unideal to arrive over crowd centre and still be talking to air traffic. It's, it, you're kind of busy enough as it is at that stage. And I got a brain like a sieve, I'll end up forgetting the clearance anyway. So I'm better off writing it in crayon on my, on my knee pad or on my head or something. All right, so we're running in now. So the idea is I've got a tire set up as a, as a waypoint, as a target point effectively. That's gonna give me two things. It's firstly a, a basic distance to go, but it'll also give me a, a cheats um, time to go, like any GPS these days. But in my heads-up display, uh, I'll designate it as a target and I get a nice little diamond that's actually over type itself. And that means that, particularly those low slant angles in an unfamiliar place, I can line up kind of nicely where I am. I can stick a course bar on the, uh, the uh, display between my legs that'll also give me the orientation of the runway, the main runway. So the run-in now is I'm getting closer. Gradual descent, power's coming up now. Expecting to arrive overhead within the order of about 8,000 pounds. So the internal aircraft will hold roughly 10. Um, I've got an external tank on, which will burn out by the time we get there. And that gives me about you know 15 minutes of holding or so uh, on the way down there. The arrival is designed to hit crowd centre at the time on target that we've nominated. Um, if, if again, if that's the way the show is running. At 550 knots uh, and at 200 feet um, off the deck. So uh, nice and fast. And then very rapidly, the idea here is, I guess, to contrast with what has been seen up to date. So that's, you know, speed is the, one of the things that, that is a point of difference, I guess. So we'll, we'll come over really pretty fast. Quite a, almost immediately, it's a snap reversal to the left. Power comes back at this point almost to idle. Standard throttle's up, maybe back to about a quarter throttle or so. And then it's a straight into about a six and a half to seven G turn um, sustained with the velocity vector coming up now. Uh, about five degrees nose up and again this is purely designed to mitigate as much noise as we can if i did this turn in full afterburner yeah we've, we've lost the game already so we'll just limit it where we can um, that puts me to a thousand probably around uh, just beyond uh, the end of runway zero eight so it's a very tight it's quite a tight turn in fact it'll probably be a bit further out than that those sort of speeds and i'm, I'm really looking to capture 350 at this point as, as i'm getting back to 350 the power's starting to come in and but i'm sustaining that g that turn track, I guess, is what I'm doing. And I'm looking from really about, about the opposite point. Uh, the main thing I'm concerned about now is crowd line. No, I really don't, I don't want to blow through that if I can for, for safety. I've got some fat there as well. I can actually tighten my turn if I need to. I can squat the aircraft and actually get a far better instantaneous turn rate. Again, it costs me energy and speed if I do that, or I just need to use more left hand. And I can square that corner a little to make sure I do maintain my, my line. So we'll have a, a fairly fast sort of turn that'll bring me back over the crowd at around, uh, around 350 knots uh, and 250 feet roughly. There'll be then a basically a max rate turn at 350 which will continue in the same direction. Um, afterburn is coming back in uh, when we're over the airfield environment again for noise and now looking to basically sustain a 350 knot turn again rising slightly to a thousand on the opposite side. Now just demonstrating how quickly this jet can turn, but positioning me to come back at the crowd, um, descending down to, to 250 again, a turn away, and then quite fast still, so 350-ish, where I'm going to be able to get almost my full G out of the aircraft before it slows down into alpha, and I sort of disappear off down that end of the, 
of the, the flight envelope. So that, um, that rapid pull there, probably seeing in the order of five to six G, nothing, uh, nothing ridiculous, but a, a rapid uh, nose pitch up check, um, and that'll basically give me a, uh, an offset now to come back to the left. By this stage, we're back probably off the southern end of 3.5. Um, power's coming right back, possibly to idle. Um, I'm expecting the aircraft at this stage up at around 2,000 or so. Back at idle, potentially speed brake, uh, and you'll see that between the fins as I come around the corner here. Looking to capture 2.30, so getting quite slow. We're below gear speed now. Uh, gear speed in this thing's 2.50. The idea now is I'm going to line myself up along the display line, parallel with 3.5, and now it'll be quite slowly, so quite sedately coming at 2.30 level at around 200 feet again, 200 to 250. As I approach the crowd centre, there'll be a um, full afterburner 15 alpha um, turn to the left. The idea is just I want to turn the tail of the aircraft to the, the crowd quite quickly, and then a check, roll, just, just about a Half a second pause there, just to let the airflow kind of realign itself. The, the centerline tank can make it a little twitchy sometimes. And what you don't want to do is get yourself in a in a rolling, pitching, um, high alpha situation with a centerline. It can just get a bit flicky. The flight control software has been updated about five years ago. They just changed the way the ones and zeros think and the, and the inputs they take. And this jet now is is incredibly departure um, departure resistant. Um, unlike the old one where you could actually you could, you could flick it, you could spin it, you could get into a very ugly falling leaf mode. Um, a lot of that stuff now has been taken out. Some of the old guys also think it's taken out some of the finesse and some of the ability to, to really rack this thing around in some strange um, uh, environments to, to get, get an advantage and water the young guy's eyes. It's more like now Nintendo, you know, XXX3 left and it, <laughs> and it does something that doesn't make sense. So anyway, so 2.30, crowd centre letting the jet just settle for that, that half second and then full cooker and it's a full back stick um, which will just pitch the nose up, I'm slow now. So I'm now into, it's the angle of attack now that's going to limit me effectively. I'm unrestricted as far as the flight manual goes but I guess uh, I'm going to hit angle of attack issues before it gets anywhere near the G limits of seven and a half. Won't get, won't get anywhere near it. So this is now aiming to get, uh, if I can, to 35 alpha momentarily the nose comes to almost 60 nose up uh, on the waterline, so just where the nose is actually pointing, but I'm actually going that way. Uh, I'm actually at that stage half of that effectively. Almost instantaneously, then punching the stick right forward to the stops. It's um, confronting the first time the third time you do it. But again, at these weight speeds and configuration, unlimited in negative alpha as well. I will get a negative alpha tone if I let it go too far, and that's just saying to me, hey, probably getting to an ugly ugly bit here. In reality, the manoeuvre actually will only get to about minus one alpha, minus two alpha, and it's really only about a minus one to two G bunt over the top. It takes me up about a thousand feet, and it's just like climbing stairs really. It's just, you're sort of suddenly up and the tail flicks up and, and you level at about 230 knots, tracking away uh, from the crowd. That sets me up now to turn back to the right and come around for the classic sort of dirty pass. So just throwing everything out. Now, this is, this is one of the areas where you can really mess this up from basics. The key now is to, is to go right back into domestics mode and it's straight to the, to the check. So you know, below 250, speed brakes in, landing gears down, checking and cross-checking the speeds three or four times because there's nothing worse than overspeeding the gear at this point, declaring a pan and having to go back to sail with your tail between your legs. Half flat for this one. Um, what else are we going to put out? Landing light on, the probe comes out, so independent checks for that, making sure now we're below 300 because that's the probe travel speed. And then the hook comes down, hook's got unlimited uh, speed on it. 
It's just a dirty great lump of metal. From there, we're past the crowd at around 350, 400 feet, uh, nice and slow, um, at about 180 knots or so. Um, still a lot above our actual approach speed, but, but just in a nice, comfortable area where if I was to lose an engine at that speed and height, I've got plenty of smash to be able to get the other engine, engine up. I'm not at a high angle of attack at this stage. I'll be at a five degrees angle of attack. So it's nowhere near our, we're not gonna get into directional control problems. And I can fly out of that very, very comfortably. The flaps are already at half, so I don't need to go through that step in the emergency boldface checklist, which for an engine fire, engine failure in that landing configuration, basically is to get the throttles up and to get the flaps to half, to get some of that drag off, but to keep the good lift still going. Uh, and then basically flying out of it um, from there. So we'll come past, we'll, we'll have a bit of a waggle. As I'm coming around, I'm then gonna go offset away, stick the probe in, stick the hook up, so they're just out of the way now. And I'm gonna reverse now and come for a low approach into type, um, basically line myself up with the runway and uh, really the glory days of the 150 of Tanker Hotel Foxtrot. And that allows us, because we're using the runway itself, we've got a you know, an authorized cleared plane, if you like, approach path we can bring that right down now to, to a low overshoot. So in the order of 50 to 200 feet, depending on the day and, and how it's going. Once we get down there, again, keeping it very sedate and calm, and I've got full flap now, uh, just to slow me down a little bit. It'll be a level to slightly nose up. Power's coming up to sort of mid-range now. Gear coming up, flap coming up. And the idea now is I want to clean the aircraft off and have enough time again to do the basics. So gear and flap lights out by 250, landing lights off. As I'm approaching crowd center, I'm keeping the power back a little, so I'm only at about 180. And as I get to crowd center now, again, just a full afterburner coming in and squatting the aircraft um, sort of at the crowd line. It'll just pitch me up to about 30 nose up or so. And all I'm trying to do here is jump back up to 1,000 and then left turn, rolling left, and now capturing around 230 knots is what I'm after again. And here's where we're gonna go into the, the rate and radius comparison. So the commentator now should be sort of talking about the fact that in a dogfight you often again there's there's so many variations to the rule but you're often after either a very small radius to get inside someone else's radius and get an advantage that way that kind of picture and either shoot him there and for the listeners the hands are out so grant knows what i'm talking about but if you can imagine flying to opposite sides of the circle one guy getting inside the other i can actually turn you know turn the gun on at that point and rake bullets through him or i can do it so successfully that i can now reverse inside his circle and arrive behind him in an advantage where now I can actually shoot him while we're going in the same direction. Called a, it's a, basically a one circle fight because we're fighting within one circle, we're sharing the same one. So what I'm demonstrating here is that minimum radius turn. So at around 2.30, full afterburner and now snapping fairly quickly. In fact, on the way out here, it's slowish to get there just so I can get the display line back again. So I'm not I don't come out the other end over the crowd, that's bad, because I don't have a lot of scope to square the corner on the other end. So I'm gonna ease on the way out, and then really as I get to about oh, the 90 degree point, then you'll see the jet come into 25 alpha. So I'm flying the circle at a 25 degree angle of attack. So really I'm, the direction I'm going is through the floor effectively, through my rudder pedals. And we'll do that at a thousand, just because high alpha flight with descents is a bit untidy. So we looked at that from a safety point of view and went, you know what, we won't do this climbing descending thing for noise. We'll just, we'll go on the side of safety, we'll go to a thousand and we'll fly this thing level. It'll look better from there anyway for the crowd because you'll be able to look up at the, the circle. Uh, ideally the crowd will have a chance to sort of pick a feature on the ground and go, okay, that's kind of roughly where I think he, he went over on the other side. 
back out of that over the crowd again or sorry over the crowd line the uh, display line now reversal so just popping the nose up again tracking outbound for a sec and again climbing for noise power's coming back to that mid-range for the locals then uh, a quite tight right turn to come back the other way so now coming back along 17 power's trickling up now to 350 and i'm after 350 knots is, is a good sort of rate speed that's going to maintain my energy quite well and I'm now looking at a maximum rate turn so this is where I want my nose pointing in the other direction as quickly as possible that doesn't necessarily mean I'm flying the smallest radius they're very different so this will be done from 500 to about a thousand full afterburner now as I come over the crowd and around about 12 degrees angle of attack and holding that 350 knots with full cooker and you'll see that nose should track around much faster than you saw before but I'll blow the, the actual turn radius out a little bit uh, it's not it's not gross and then back over the crowd from there uh, we now look to contrast back to slow so another reposition turn back at idle again for noise but also to start slowing down squat the jet to the south of tyab lining up on a kind of long finals i guess for three five turning at a thousand feet and now rolling out heading north along the display line if i nail it and my XO Beastie is a master at doing this, of just turning, and he's, there he is, at, at 25 alpha, at 1,000 feet, with a power set beautifully. He's done it a few times more than the rest of us. The intent here, though, is to, to hold that 1,000 foot, and the speed will gradually bleed back to about 125 knots indicated now. Really quite low power, so I'm now at 25 alpha, around 82%, and tracking north along the, the display line with the crowd down to the right-hand side. The trick here is to, I'm using pitch, I guess, to maintain level at this stage, because again, I don't have a reference in my HUD because the angle of attack is so high that I'm looking, the, the HUD can't see down to where the actual aircraft is going, so I've just got a flashing velocity vector at the bottom saying, you're going somewhere that's not within the heads-up display. So I've got, I've actually set it up uh, on my other screens. I can basically trick the system to show it to me anyway with a horizon line. That can give me some very real finesse, I guess, with maintaining that altitude and power now effectively sort of string through the years but power I can play that very subtly to just tweak that angle of attack to get it back to 25. We could do this at 35 or 40 degrees angle of attack there's plenty of power to do it. The reason we don't is again safety. The altitude we picked is born in not blood but in uh, in Canadian aircraft. You'll see there was a great lesson from that. It was that same maneuver that was being done there. We're doing it higher and flown this about 10 times or so in the sim with uh, single engine failures so if there's nothing else i need to take into this display it's being ready so any time from that turn on to north i'm expecting the engine to fail and i'm waiting for it to go and i'm basically ready so that we're ready with the immediate actions which effectively the power's coming straight up but be careful depending on what's going on to get it to full afterburner uh, too quickly but power's coming up hand goes straight down to half flap and counterintuitively I'm actually going to push forward quite dramatically I'm going to unload the alpha off the aircraft because I've got a thousand feet that's heaps um, even with one engine going uh, down the back I don't have time to work out who's who so both throttles are coming up that'll give me plenty of time to get that 25 alpha off the aircraft get me back down below about 10 alpha and then quite quickly to where I want to be which is more like about eight but then put a bit of speed on speed is accelerating quite quickly even with one engine I've got half flap now so I've got that extra extra lift and you'll often find we'll only lose about 250 feet or so in the recovery back to, to level and then just a nice ginger pull away as we accelerate. That gives me sort of 300% redundancy uh, over the top of, of um, how we could do this. Again, as we roll out, I'm still expecting the engine's gonna fail. You know, it's, it's just that awareness and that, that preparation the whole time. As we get to the end of the crowd line, the way out of this is 
full afterburner. And you just hold the waterline or peg that, so that's sitting up there at 25 degrees nose up. Now I'm just gonna let the angle of attack reduce to the point where we're now just heading 25 degrees nose up, about four alpha. And, and by now we've burnt down a bit of fuel, I'm probably down to in the region of 6,000 pounds by now. You're burning the dinosaurs pretty fast through this. Um, so at 6,000, I'm now really quite light, and that you know that thrust really gives me a whole lot. From there, we're getting quite close to the end of the show now. So again, contrasting, we've just done slow, so now we want fast again. So a bit of a teardrop turn. So as I go past that sort of uh, Mornington Tire Road, I guess it is, most likely a check to the right, because I'm now outside the display box. And that, uh, as I accelerate, and I'm climbing slightly, afterburn is going to stay in, being very conscious not to go over tire, the township itself. So quite quickly, coming back to the left, Again, full afterburner, trying to keep the turn tight, but not so tight that I'm not accelerating. If I'm at high angle of attack, I just won't put the knots on fast enough. So then blowing out past the uh, extended center line, nose is coming down, back down to 200 feet, and I'm looking to come past again at 550. Um, if I can do this, uh, ideally coming past with top wing, just for, again, the photo kind of angles, and the sun should be in a great spot, hopefully, to, uh, to make that look all right. Once we go past the uh, bottom end of the runway, then a... We're back into a right-hand turn. We're now still in the order at 500 knots, most likely. I'll put the power back at a touch again because we've got noise concerns over to the west. Do this sub-mill. Climbing again back to 1,000 feet, but a nice big sort of turn that's going to maintain my 450 at that kind of power setting, but also allow me to line myself up coming directly west, no, sorry, directly east now for the classic vertical departure. So as I'm getting close to the crowd, power's trickling back in, nose is coming down, and I'm looking to capture 200 feet nose onto the crowd but not passing the display line below really a thousand fifteen hundred feet so the idea is the pull up happens early enough that i'm almost vertical by the time i get there so we seven and a half g pull to the vertical afterburner stays in just to keep the engines running you've got to avoid zero g so you don't go to 90 degrees nose up and just bunt it to a sort of ballistic flight path straight up because the uh, the noise will stop um, after a few seconds ideally you need to be negative or, or positive g this thing works really quite well to go, I find, to about 80 nose up, but then just maintain some positive G. And it really just does a very, very slow flop over the top and take it and then just, just flop it off the top at about 15,000-ish or so. And you're up there, you count it, it's about 10 seconds or so. The rate of climb something like 70,000 feet a minute. Oh, I should have a look in the, in the hard one day. Um, you're still doing a good 350, 370 knots when you get to the top. It's, it's incredible. It's like on this rocket elevator up to the moon. <laughs> and then we're done. And then from there, we're talking to Melbourne. Again, and now tracking very stately back to uh, back to sail. And landing, what, with about 5,000? Yeah, still have quite a bit left. It's great because it means that if the weather back here is a little bit iffy, which it can be in Gippsland, we'll still have inter-fuel requirements. So I can hold for half an hour if I need to. Being Melbourne, in fact, down here we've also got a... Uh, we've brought a, a, an arrestor cable system down. So we have a deployable cable we use, and we've strung that across the east-west runway. And that just gives me options in case I lose, um, particularly the right engine and I lose my uh, you know my normal brakes or nose wheel steering um, so that I can just take a trap mm. uh, and not uh, not run the risk of bleeding the, the emergency brakes on rollout. Thanks for that Tim. It's all right it's uh, it, look it's a lot of fun as I said we don't do this very often and it's uh, it's 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 a, a bit of an honor I guess it's, it's one of those things we share around and as the boss of a squadron we'll you know we'll make sure that these, these good deals get shared to the, the, the guys and girls. This is my turn, which is uh, kind of nice, nice with the boss. But for example, uh, the Formula One Grand Prix, which we're doing the weekend after, we've given that to one of the quite junior guys. Um, and he, again, is, you know, it's a lot of trust for, uh, for young guys to go down and do it, but invariably they always 
to do more than you ever expected and, uh, and do it safely and effectively. And um, it is uh, you know, quite humbling and, and, and as a boss, it's, it's, it's great to see how well they do that. Great for their growth, great for their, you know, their maturity. They, they've put so much work in over the years to get to that point. A good deal here and there, you know, it doesn't hurt. Cool. Well, it looked pretty good in the practice session, mate. Um, I was looking through a viewfinder for most of it, but uh, really enjoyed it. So thanks. Looking forward to seeing it on Sunday. Fantastic. Can't wait. Flying Officer Michael Newby, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries, man. Now, uh, you came down here with Wing Commander also. Uh, you were flying the number two aircraft. Yes, yes, I was. Yeah, you got the one with a very lovely looking tail. That's it, the one with the pretty sails. <laughs> yeah, squadron flagship. Cool. Um, okay, mate. Well, let's. You're, you're um, as a flying officer on the Hornet. Uh, that's a pretty good spot to be. Uh, pretty early in your career too. Yeah, it's a great spot to be. Um, your first tour, as I'm told, is always your best. And uh, yeah, I'm having a great time. It's okay. awesome. How old are you, mate? 25. Cool. Yeah. When did you go into the Air Force, and why? I uh, joined the Air Force just before my 20th birthday, uh, and I've always wanted to fly. Always wanted to fly fighters and uh, yeah, just flying in general. <laughs> did you do any flying before you got to the Air Force? I did, I did. I had a, uh, almost a commercial license when I joined. Wow, cool. Did you work pretty hard for it or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Dad had a flying school, but uh, it was, yeah, general aviation, you know, so you gotta pay your own way, so. Which flying school was that? Uh, Inverell Aviation in northern New South Wales. Cool, yeah. so that's in the blood. It is, yeah. Grandfather was a uh, Army Air Corps pilot as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's that's good when it's flying down the generations. It certainly is. So uh, you're almost at commercial. Um, did you go through uni or anything, or? No. Uh, well, I tried uni for six months, but it wasn't my thing. Um, flying is is my thing. <laughs> Way more fun. So you, when you got picked up by the Air Force, you already were practically at commercial level. Yep. So how did they process through process you through BFTS and so on? No differently. Right. Yeah, treated as if I had zero time. So, uh, did effects of controls again uh, in the CT4, and you know, all through climbing, descending, straight and level, that sort of good stuff. But uh, that was, I found it great. I was getting paid to fly. So. <laughs> you can't knock that, can you? No. So, so how'd you go in terms of unlearning to relearn their way as opposed to what you've been taught? Uh, well, thankfully, the way I'd been taught was, you know, to a pretty high standard. Um, I was told at the end of flight screening to go home and congratulate my father on a job well done nice. um, due to his instructional technique. Uh, so that was that was great, and I didn't really have to unlearn anything. It was more just, hey, I'm I'm comfortable in the aeroplane now, and I know I can fly, but let's just do it their way. Mm. Um, and that was quite easy to adapt to. Great, that's well done, mm. and congrats, Dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So after BFTS, uh, you're off to two FTS and onto the PC9. Yep. So now suddenly you're playing with turbines. Yes. Yeah. First time. Yeah. How was that? Awesome. Yeah. yeah great aeroplane to fly. Um, 950 horsepower. You know, at your fingertips. It's uh, it's a sports car. It's awesome. And I hear she's pretty twitchy, reactionary. It's uh, one little maneuver and she's doing it. Yeah. It's it's beautiful to fly. Uh, very agile um, and slippery too. Yeah, you can easily straighten level, get around you know, 250 plus knots. Nice. out of it so it's uh yeah, it's a nice machine cool and uh so then um as as the step that i missed before when i was chatting so after the two fts it's off to um you were selected to go through to the hawks yep yep uh, so fast jet training uh intro fighter course is what it is uh so it's 79 squadron there's where you learn to fly the hawk so pretty much everything you've done 
in the nine month course on the PC9. You then learn how to do that on a jet, being the Hawk, in three months. Wow, so uh, pretty pretty intense. Yeah, it's quite fast paced. A lot to consume. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so, and also a lot faster and... Definitely, yeah, your first trip, you're, you know, you're climbing and you're getting about seven or 8,000 feet a minute rated climb and you level off and you're cruising at 350 knots indicated, so. <laughs> So it's, it takes a bit of shifting gears to keep ahead of that one. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're hanging onto the tailplane when you first get on it. <laughs> so you go through the Hawk, um, you, get, you got everything sorted away there, and um, so you went through, learned to fly the Hawk, then learned to fight the Hawk. Yep. Um, and then it was into 2OCU. Yep. Um, yep. So again, still staying at Richmond. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, still staying at Williamtown. Yeah, so uh, you come to 70, from 79, you go to 76 Squadron. Uh, which is where you learn to fight the Hawk. So you're now a jet pilot, so you could fly the Hawk anywhere in Australia. And uh, now you learn you know, the combat side of the house, so dogfighting, uh, intercepts, and bombing, strafing, uh, all that sort of good stuff. Cool. Uh, and then in Williamtown also, so you finish there, a little bit of time in ops flight, where you just essentially get more experience, more captain time on the Hawk, uh, whilst waiting for a, an operational conversion, being either the classic Hornet or Super Hornet. Okay. Uh, so yeah, yep. And so you've gone through two OCU at Williamtown to get onto the classic. Yep. And uh, actually, on a side note, some uh, friends in America keep telling me it's a legacy. They call them legacy hornets. Yeah, we do. We we rarely hear that. Everyone sort of officially knows it as the classic. I think yeah. I think it's because over here, legacy is is either a retired soldiers group or yeah. <laughs> for old computer systems and old airlines. It seems to be that way. Yeah, <laughs> we don't we don't want a beautiful hornet called legacy. It's no. classic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like a classic. Uh, cool. So you're you're on the hornet, uh, the classic. You're. Um, so what was 2OCU like? Was it just basically here's the differences between a Hawk and a Hornet and then once you've mastered that it's here's the difference in, in the combat? Uh, essentially, yeah. It's, it's I guess another a step in the progression to becoming a frontline fighter pilot. Uh, you can only learn so much on the Hawk and the Hornet brings you know, a couple of different aspects in a higher level um, of, I guess, performance and uh, tactical employment. Um, so it's just learning how to do that uh, and once again it's it's a five to six month course uh, but it's it's the hardest of, of the lot yeah. by far puts you through the grinder it certainly does long days you know late nights yes <laughs> yeah okay and so at the end of all that you come out and you're now ready to go to a squadron and did you have any preference did you wind up where you kind of want to go or yeah I, w- I want a three squadron um just from before I joined the Air Force, I wanted a three-squadron, so uh, I was stoked to, to get what, what I wanted. Any particular reason for, behind that? Uh, a couple of years, about a year before I joined the Air Force, uh, we had two Hornets from three-squadron um, come and visit, so that sort of sealed the deal. Uh, that you know, It'd be nice to, to end up with that squadron, but you know, the, the fast-flying fighting third has quite a rich history. Um, you know, it dates back a long way, yeah. so it's a, a very important squadron within Air Force history, so it's great to be be part of it. Cool. Okay, and uh, so now you're in three squadron, um, and you've come down here not just bringing down the number two aircraft, but you're also going to be at Tyab doing the commentary. Yes. Yep. So, uh, what kind of planning and preparation have you done for that? Uh, so essentially, I've just sat down with the boss uh, regarding his display. Uh, so he's obviously had to do a couple of sims and a few practice flights, and. I've just observed uh, the practice flights and then sat down with him and spoke about, uh, well, talked to what um, 
what he's going to be doing throughout the display. So uh, when he's doing his min radius turn, so just thinking about what sort of distance is required there, uh, his max rate turn, so seeing how long that takes and just sort of trying to amplify the differences in those things. Also the 550 knot pass, you know, 200 feet, that's you know, sort of highlighting the aspects where the Hornet can fly that fast. And then also, you know, back at, you know, around the 100 plus knots mark for the, uh, for the slow speed pass. So um, just seeing where that's all gonna fall into the, into the program, just so it, it sounds fluid and is professional. Cool. cool. Have they given you any briefings, tips or training on um, public speaking? No. <laughs> in at the deep end that's it <laughs> that's legend yeah <laughs> cool well uh, this is your first go at presenting it is it certainly is awesome yeah well you're not doing it for the whole day you're just doing it for one session that's so it it's a good start baby steps that's the one thanks noobs appreciate you coming on the show no worries thanks for having me um, alright so the, the, the walk around um, is uh, a Hornet version of, of what every pilot does um, before before flying. The the thing we try and instill in the students right from the start of I guess BFTS and uh, 2FTS when I was over there is that it doesn't matter how late you are and it doesn't matter what's happened prior to that. But as you get to that that mental gate as you arrive at the aircraft, everything has to stop. All those pressures have to evaporate and you have to now go into almost robotic mode and do the same walk around every single time. Um, and um, once people have that that kind of mental step, um, uh, then it, it, it works quite well. If you're late, if you're five minutes late when you arrive at the aircraft, you're five minutes late to take off. Generally, um, it's uh, it's too late at that point. So as as we're walking out to the aircraft, um, the walk around starts already. Effectively, I'm having a look for um, making sure that the static light, static leads have been been removed. Um, I'm looking to see that the covers are off, that uh, there's no, you know, remove before flight tags, that the, the pins have been removed. There's nothing obviously wrong with this jet um, that, that is unusual. At that stage, I'm also having, I guess, having a bit of a look at the wind and looking at the, you know, what runway are we on, sort of thinking the next step ahead. But um, really now it's just focused on the aircraft itself. Um, if I'm, if I've got a bit of a head of uh, the troop, uh, the, uh, the, that's helping launch me on, on flight line, then Again, very conscious that we'll put our stuff down and pretty much step back because he's doing his walk around as well. He's doing his step-by-step um, -step check that I rely on so heavily to, to make sure the aircraft's prepped the same way uh, every time. And, and without that, things fall through the cracks. Um, so first thing is uh, to the bottom of the ladder. Um, stuff goes on the ground generally at this point. Um, and now it's, it's up the ladder into the cockpit. First thing you always check is uh, make sure that the ejection seat is safe. Um, and that we've got all of the critical switches in the aircraft are, are safe as well. So the master arm switch is safe um, and also checking down to make sure the countermeasure switch is, uh, is in the safe position as well. So anything that can potentially bite me um, uh, uh, isn't a problem. Uh, at that stage, putting the, the, the basically the, uh, the videotape in um, and the data card uh, into the aircraft uh, and then the ejection seat pre-flight itself. So again, making sure all the pins are out, the, the maintenance pins are gone, the, the connections that I need to port all of the, the hot gases around the place are in the right place. Um, the, the, uh, the trip rods are connected to the aircraft um, where they're meant to be so that um, as the seat exits stage right, stage up, um, the, uh, the carts that uh, are needed to be fired to actually start, start the um, parts of the ejection sequence uh, fire in the, in the right order. Uh, 
and making sure that I've got emergency oxygen contents and all the rest of it. Once that's done, back down the ladder uh, and now uh, we're into again the, exactly the same walk around every single time. So for me, I go to the, the nose wheel. Um, I have a habit of clicking the, uh, one of the uplock latches. It doesn't do anything. There's no reason to check that, but it, it's almost again, a, it's just a metal check. Um, uh, from there, we're looking at uh, a whole bunch of um, stuff in the nose wheel well, making sure that, um, that uh, there's some pressures, pressure gauges up there I need to check to make sure that, um, that all of the uh, accumulator pressures and, and, and various bits and bobs are, uh, are charged. Uh, back from there, uh, now I'm checking, um, uh, I've already had the, the gun panel closed um, because every day you're also checking to make sure the gun is either electrically connected or disconnected. Um, there are rounds in or not in it as required, depending on what you're doing. Um, you don't want to turn up at a practice air-to-air -air engagement, pull the trigger, and the thing winds up. It's happened before in the US um, uh, quite a long time ago. And when you do red flag, they show you some video of that happening, um, uh, a couple of F-16s, and it didn't end well, I don't think. Um, so that's uh, pretty consciously checked. Uh, from there, um, again, making sure the panels are done up. Across the radome, looking for, for general, um, general issues there. Down the other side, scanning up and down really, making sure that the uh, leading edge extensions are, uh, are sort of clean, there's no damage. Checking the gear doors, I'm checking the, the condition of the tyres that make sure that the oleo's um, inflated correctly. Uh, and now, as we go down the right hand side, again checking all my panels are, are buttoned up because um, I can't see them from inside the aircraft, obviously. Um, engine intakes, making sure that they're, uh, they're clear. Uh, and then down underneath the aircraft itself, and now having a really good look at the uh, main gear. Uh, we're looking for, for uh, again, oleo extension. We're looking for making sure that the, the accumulator pressures there are good, um, the buffer pressures. The, um, uh, there's a couple of, uh, there's a, a shrink link uh, and a planing link, which are uh, basically two links that rotate the wheel when it gets retracted to sideways and then stows it correctly. They are prone, not very often, but rarely prone to uh, to failing. Um, they can bend, and you can end up with the wheel actually not facing in the direction you want. It's quite it can get quite serious. Uh, if that happens, then um, you, you're generally going to have to take a trap um, if you've got one available. So we're checking those, making sure there's a right there's play in that where I need to. Uh, out along the wing, no difference to proof, no different to proof flighting assessment really. You're looking for security, looking to make sure the flaps are connected properly, that the ailerons are, are where they should be, that. Um, um, you know, everything again is looking the way it needs to. Uh, rounds to the edge of the wingtips uh, and uh, checking the missile. Uh, if we've got a, an ASRAM on the, on the wingtip, a short range air to air missile. Um, if it's a, a real one, you'd be checking, um, uh, checking to make sure coolant pressures are, are all good. Um, and again, making sure everything's secure. Along the back of the, um, the wing, then into down the side of the fuselage. Again, a, a good look at the tail um, and look at the stabs. Um, we're looking now for hide leaks, particularly in the, in, in the stab area. Uh, fuel leaks as well back there. Around the back of the, the, the stabs at the back, um, checking that the, uh, the variable exhaust nozzle, nozzles, the, the, um, the basically engine exhaust, there should be a bit of play in that. That stuff's made of some sort of space age, you know, um, crystalline um, metal that can, can operate at a huge variety of temperatures. Um, uh, quite amazing and, and again it should be should be playing that so it can open and, and close freely. Um, check that the hook's good um, and now a good look across the underside of the aircraft make sure all the maintenance panels are closed again. Uh, we're checking that we've got the hook, um, our pin has been removed, 
Um, there's pressure in the in the uh, arrestor hook to make sure that it's going to come come down when I need it to. And now we're really into the mirror image, so in reverse now, along the other side of the aircraft, which really brings you right back to um, the uh, the ladder. At which point, put the helmet on, and, and generally you're off. Can you tell me the key salient points, like the engines, the radar, the um, the gun, and yep. just go through and say, you know, the F-18 has this, this, and this, and I'll marry that up to, you know, footage over the nose of the gun ports and all that. Yep, sure. All right, so. Um, the, uh, the Hornet is obviously a, a twin-engine fighter, a couple of uh, GEF 404 um, turbofans. They're kind of low bypass, probably I think it's around the 30% bypass on those things. Um, nominally 16,000 pounds of, of thrust aside with full afterburner. Uh, it's probably when we got them out of the box. It's probably a little bit less than that now. Um, but again, the engines have been changed. You know, the, the engines don't say, the same engines don't say we want aircraft all the time. So um, they've certainly been um, uh, new engines have been put in over the, over the time of the aircraft. The, um, the heart of the aircraft, the fighting system of the aircraft is the radar um, behind the radar in there. So APG-73 radar, that's been upgraded since I started flying it and it is fantastic. As, as a mechanically scanned radar, it's one of the best in the world. Um, and really to get any better now, we'd have to go to an AESA system similar to the Super Hornet. And that's a whole different league. The uh, the gun uh, at the front um, the, um, is a 20 millimeter cannon. You'll see three ports there. The centre one is where the rounds come from, uh, come out of. The other two are basically coolant um, and uh, exhaust ports for the generates a whole lot of cordite smoke because uh, we're firing 100 rounds a second out of that. Um, um, and the drum mag drum magazine sits really behind where the radar is, I guess down. Uh, in front of your feet. Um, it's a helical feed, so it's a continuous helix that runs through that thing um, that uh, carries uh, up to 578 rounds. So really, if you pull the trigger, it's going to run out in about six seconds. Uh, spools up very fast uh, and also spools down very quickly, but you do lose a few rounds into the system each time you stop firing, just because it physically can't just stop in space or you'll end up with a thing looking like a, like a spiral. That, uh, the gun is, is uh, tilted two degrees nose up. Um, that makes it, uh, I guess, less than ideal for, for air-to-surface attacks um, because you need to point the, the, the aircraft at the ground a little bit further, but two degrees is, is fairly negligible. But what it does allow is that if I roll left, then the pivot moves left. If I had it the other way, it would have a, a pendulosity that would, um, would, would be counterintuitive, I guess. Um, but it also helps us in air-to-air engagements where we're trying to shoot in front of the other aircraft so that the rounds get to his, the same bit of sky as he is uh, in about uh, one bullet's time of flight. Flight control system, uh, probably the, the, worth mentioning the, uh, the leading edge extensions at the, um, at the front of the wings. Um, and really that's the heart of the aircraft's ability to, to rapidly point its nose. So those leading edge extensions turn the inner part of the wing into almost a delta um, and it gives us the advantages of a delta wing without the disadvantages um, and it also allows me to flight that great angle of attack by generating a huge vortex um, over the tails, between the tails, over the back of the aircraft which ends up acting as a, as a lifting body almost and, and, and generating lift even though the wings themselves might be quite stalled at that, at that point. Uh, you'll see this in this configuration um, it's very clean so uh, under the wings we can put two pylons on each side and hang a variety of fuel, weapons, cruise missiles now uh, with the, uh, the JASM. Um, and uh, air-to-air missiles, depending on our, our role. Because again, remembering that the F-18 has to be able to do every job. 
um, and do them as well as possible. We don't have the luxury, just due size, of having an Air Force to do the air-to-air stuff, a Marine Corps to do uh, the, uh, the, the uh, ground support, which is, again, a really important um, uh, part of our, uh, our role and a Navy to do the, the, the naval support stuff. So it has to be a compromise, and the Hornet does do those compromises very, very well. Well, there we go, Grant. I see you're still drinking a can of Coke. What's the matter with you? Even I've had a beer by now. This yeah, is a real well, turnaround for the books. Uh, it's called medication, mate. <laughs> um, I had a nasty allergic reaction to something, and uh, I think it had to do with um, some material, some, some clothes that I bought. Didn't quite work out, uh, sort of like those polyester blends, and uh, mm. something didn't work, and the doctor said, right, you're off booze for a few months, so my waistline will no doubt love me, even though I'm having a can of Coke, but <laughs> <laughs> that's mostly to keep us awake, because after this party, we're off to see another friend's combined birthday party, three oh, in a wow, party. There you go. There you so, go. yeah, 60s theme insanity party. Well, I have to get off now and uh, make some uh, 21st birthday speeches, and uh, ah. between my son getting his license this week and my daughter turning 21... I'm a free man, buddy. Oh, there you go, mate. Hey, maybe you can do some editing, because you know what's really cool? Micah's editing this episode. On your Micah. Yeah, on your mate, and uh, we really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, it's just been uh, it's been tough uh, with the new work commitments that we have to uh, get the show out. I know everybody wants more PCDU, which is very, uh, you know, humbling for us, but we're doing our best, guys. We're doing our yeah. best. Yep. And uh, hopefully we might get a couple more out before the end of the year. We'll see how we go, but... Yeah, with me becoming account manager as well as project manager and um, all sorts of craziness jetting back and forth to our nation's capital. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. But uh, Yep, in the meantime, you can look out for the uh, DVD we've been producing. Uh, that's coming out soon, the uh, Tyab 2016 DVD and also the Wings Over Illawarra DVD. That's correct. We were quite heavily involved in that. And, of course, we... Uh, we went up there to Wings Over Illawarra and did the commentary for a couple of days. Yeah, that was and, a lot of fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun, yeah. Great challenge. And, uh, yeah, so uh, it's not that we're not uh, not making the podcast so much, but we're still getting out there and trying to promote aviation as best we know how, and it's a lot of fun to do. To quote Steve from Airspeed, the DVD, well, paraphrase, the DVD ate my uh, air, air show. Ate <laughs> <laughs> his podcast, that's for sure. All right. Okay, cheers, guys. Off. Cheers. Thanks, Micah. Bye. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at planecrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback, suggestions, advertising inquiries. Email them through to contact at plainecrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, 
please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Start on our interview, and they've just herded us away. They're moving the 767 forward so that they can move the A330, but I don't know what's going on right now. <laughs> Blooper reel. Okay, so I can describe the scene here. We got a KC 767 from Japan, nose on with a. And that's why we've ended up being the Mahindra Airband 8 and 10 now. Sorry about this, I just had a phone call just then. <laughs> That's all good. I'll just quickly answer this. Sorry sure. About this. Oh man, I'm not. No, no, I know what it's like. Alright, I was going to leave the recording anyway, just so yep. I can see. It all. Okay, no, they're not available, Bagram. Okay. <laughs> um, cool. It was a great result, and we give thanks to God for it. Oh, really? Sorry, pardon me for one moment. Yeah, yeah. Hello? 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 Bugger you. Missed call. Alright, I'll talk to him later. Sorry about that. <laughs> Media, you're always getting people wanting to talk. And... Oh, of course. Yep. Life goes on. Yep. Um, am I able to ask that question again? I'm just going to...